Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We have, I think, what will be a jam-packed episode because we have another new episode of Doctor Who, Wild Blue Yonder. It was fantastic. It was indeed. And then we have a brand new Godzilla movie, Godzilla Minus One, which is in theaters here in the United States now and is also fantastic, right? It is one of the best Godzilla movies ever made, yes. All right. So we have some good stuff to talk about today, and uh, I think this is going to be a busy one. So I think we should dive right in. Uh, Sean, let's talk about some stuff. What have you been up to before we get into the Godzilla and the Doctor Who of it all with spoilers and everything? And if you only want to listen to one part or the other, we've got the full timestamps. I do those every week. You can go down and look at those and jump around to whatever you want. But let's start with some stuff. All right, yeah. So I've done a, a couple of things. One thing I want to hit, although I don't think I'll talk about it too much, this will probably be a thing that I'll just go big on on the top 10 stuff at the end of the year, is I did finish Baldur's Gate 3. Um, I finished that a while ago at this point. I finished that a little bit after we recorded the last podcast, although also a little bit before they just put out a giant, massive fucking patch for that game <laughs> that completely revamped how the inventory works they added in a bunch of epilogue scenes and all this shit um and it, it is timed perfectly for me to just finish that game right before that patch and i haven't loaded up i know you can just load up your in-game save and i could see those epilogue scenes i'll do that at some point um but it that is a fucking great game um you know you don't think anyone needs me to tell them that and i've already told them that at this point on a couple of podcasts but it is extremely extremely good i think it says a lot about that game that on the one hand i was very eager to be done with it because i'd spent so much time playing it that there was like a part of me that's like i gotta move on to doing other stuff and yet the day after i finished it i still booted up the game and i was just like possessed and i just started a new character and played for like an hour it's like i can't do this like what the fuck am i doing i can't i can't start a new playthrough of Baldur's gate 3 there's other stuff i want to play um, but you know, it is, it's a fascinating game because it is a game as, as a role-playing game, it's very different than how we think about role-playing games, which we think of as these, like that it is primarily about the narrative. And I do think the narrative stuff in Baldur's Gate 3 is good, but it is so faithful to the tabletop role-playing roots that it comes from, that it is, it is the most video game ass role-playing game you can find. Um, and it is purely, it is a game that is amazing for its systems and its game design, far more so than its narrative stuff, which is narrative stuff is good, but it is not a Witcher 3 kind of thing. It's not about that. It's about something very different. You just don't get a lot of games like that these days. And so um, if people have not checked out Baldur's Gate 3, it's a great time to get it because they've just added a whole bunch of stuff and they've changed and they've tweaked and they've fixed bugs and all that kind of stuff. It, you know, it is a fairly like by the time you get to the end held together by duct tape kind of game. And I don't know how much that's changed. <laughs> you know, I'm sure they've made it better, but it is the kind of game that it is inevitable that by the time you get to the end of it, it is barely holding itself together under the stress of all the different shit that you can do because it is so modular. Um, there's so many things that can be different. And that was the thing I was thinking about in terms of starting a new character and i would love to do this one day maybe with like a pc version using mods to make like a super powerful character at the beginning i want to know what it's like if you play that game 
and you just kill every single person as soon as you can. Because you can kill almost every yes. single NPC in that game. <laughs> and I just am so incredibly curious, what is it like? Because I think there's like a couple of characters that only exist in very specific scenes. So I think that other than near the end of the game, you can't ever actually kill them. I, th- I think you can kill everybody in that game. But for some of the characters, they, they're very careful to shelter them off in you never are actually able to control anything while that character is physically in the environment and so they appear and then they will disappear in the middle of a conversation rather than you being able to stop time and then murder them because if you are allowed to turn on your turn-based mode you can kill anyone in that game and i'm so deathly curious what is that like um and you know there's so many other things like that of of what is it like if you try to do this play the game in this way approach scenarios in this way um it it is a a fantastic video game absolutely um i hope one day i can find the time to go back to it i have not had a lot of time for games recently um i've been playing one a little bit that i did want to talk about briefly um because i'm loving it so far i did pick this up when it came out which was right before thanksgiving and i've put probably five or six hours into it um just like i said have not had a lot of time to play games but i've been playing super mario rpg on the nintendo switch the remake um and surprisingly you know what what this game has me thinking of is the demon souls remake from ps5 Because they're very different games, but like it's a very similar sensation in that this remake is outstanding. It is like absolutely gorgeous, just an overwhelming aesthetic accomplishment. It's easily one of the nicest looking games on the Nintendo Switch, Um, you know, runs beautifully, has I think a very faithful look to the original Super NES game from what I've seen of that. It is not like trying to make the Mario characters look like they do in other Mario games. It really is trying to do a 3D version of what that Super NES game was doing, where everything kind of looks like toys or models or things like that. Um, And it's a very faithful recreation of the original in terms of, you know, the gameplay and the the basic layout of the world and everything. And I think... um, it's just done like that Demon Souls game with such a level of like beauty in its visuals and in this case especially the sound because the remastered or it's a completely newly rearranged soundtrack of the original Yoko Shimamura music is incredible. It is one of the best video game soundtracks I've ever heard. It's stupendous and they actually include the original 16-bit, you know, Super NES soundtrack if you want to go listen to that. Um, you can toggle them on and off and it is amazing to kind of go back and forth and hear how much they've fleshed that out. Um, but also kind of like that Demon's Souls game, this is a revitalization of a game that I think not many people have played, but has had a massive, massive influence. Uh, in this case, you know, Demon's Souls obviously spawned the whole sort of Dark Souls lineage of games. And Super Mario RPG, you know, Nintendo is, to this day is still making games like this in this vein. You know, it obviously there has been, it went on into the Paper Mario series and then Mario and Luigi series on the Game Boy Advance and the Nintendo DS. And I would say also like a very, very clear influence looking at it now on stuff like Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle. Any of those kind of narrativized Mario spinoffs that have some kind of RPG component. What Nintendo and Square did with this game back on the Super NES is super important, but in part because um, the Super NES game has not been re-released as much as a lot of other Super NES classics. I think a lot of people, including me, have never really played this game before, and it is kind of amazing to go back with it uh, and see kind of the origin of all this Mario RPG stuff, but on new hardware with a new coat of paint 
feeling like honestly very kind of modern in its um, presentation, but very old school in a lot of its sort of gameplay and attitude and all of that. Uh, it's revelatory in a really interesting way, and it's a, it's a super fun game. I absolutely understand why it is such a cult classic. Uh, it is one of the weirdest things Nintendo has ever put their stamp on. You know, one thing I love about this one in relation to... Because there's a lot of things that Paper Mario and Mario and Luigi took from this game. Like a lot of the combat mm -hmm. basics. But one thing those games do that this one did not is that all of the later Mario RPG games use Mario characters kind of exclusively. Mario has... Sometimes they're new versions. Like in Paper Mario, your first uh, teammate, if I'm remembering correctly, is like a Goomba kid who you're running around yes. with. But like that is a version of an existing Mario kind of asset. And they don't do any of that in Mario RPG. Your your companions are, you know, Gino, the Pinocchio-esque, like, I, I say Pinocchio-esque, he's actually an alien being who has come to inhabit the body of a doll, which is super weird. The first person you meet and put in your team is a cloud guy named Mallow, like Marshmallow. Um, and, like, there's tons of that all over the world. And there's actual, like, towns a la Final Fantasy you visit and meet people. And sometimes they're toads and sometimes they're Goombas. And uh, it's crazy. I just got to the Yoshi world where you do a race on Yoshi with another Yoshi named Boshi who wears sunglasses and is too cool for school. Uh, this game just slaps so hard. This is such a good remake. It is uh, extraordinary. And because of that Demon Souls comparison, it's been making me wonder, is this like top 10 eligible? Because we did it for Demon Souls. And uh, Yes. Yeah. yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a, a complete enough remake. Yes, that, and, and this has been a year with a lot of remakes, so it's like there's a clear like question, because like, would Metroid Prime Remastered count? It is a full graphical remake, but it's made to look exactly like the original, yeah. so it's not, so that one's a little different than like this one, um, you know, Metroid Prime Remastered is meant to look like an HD upgrade of the original, and they're kind of hiding through smoke and mirrors the fact that it's a complete from the ground like graphical rebuild, uh, versus like something like Resident Evil 4 that is just a completely different game. This is somewhere in the middle, um, but an interesting space, and I'm glad. You know, I think when we we saw Nintendo had a couple of these kind of big remakes coming out because they're also doing Paper Mario: The Thousand Year Door. You're wondering, is this just kind of the death throes of the Nintendo Switch kind of low effort ports and remakes? I would not call this low effort in any way it's wonderful and and much much more effort than i think they even had to do to revitalize this it's great the only weirdness in the whole game is that this and this is faithful to the super nes original but i think they maybe should have changed it is that nobody has voices at all and i don't mean like i want everyone to like speak their dialogue i don't want that but I mean, like, when Mario gets hit and doesn't make, like, any vocalization or things uh -huh. like that, it's, it's like, it's a little weird in that there's, like, very few sound effects, so it is mostly the images and the music. The images and the music are plenty wonderful, but it does, especially coming off of Mario Wonder, where Mario and his friends are very vocal, it's a little bit of a learning curve to get around, like, Mario just completely silent in this one. Yeah, which obviously in the on the Super Nintendo that makes perfect sense yes. because you know you almost never have any kind of vocalization given the technical limitations. But yes, it a when the game looks as modern as it does, um, it I can see how that would feel very weird that there's no like oof noises yes. or anything like that. Yeah, right. Uh, but you know it's fine. It's not that's not like a reason not to get the game. But I am glad I picked it up. It's it's fantastic. I, I'm excited to play more of it. And it looks real good on that Switch OLED screen because the color work in this one is just off the charts. 
Yeah, it's cool that they brought it back because I like you kind of pointed out because I haven't played it, but I watched back in the day the Game Center CX did a playthrough of it, and I found it very fascinating to watch that game and see kind of the scope of the story and stuff. Because I, I just love whenever you have a franchise that now is such a sort of clear codified thing and it's like you know exactly what mario is what it sounds like what it looks like who the characters are all those things are so set in stone it's really fun to go back to before that was something that was established and you just get to see like this alternate vision of like oh it could have been like this like you talked about um last week the star or it's not stars uh the doctor who the daleks um the colorized version right and going back and seeing doctor who before the Daleks were like an ingrained essential part of the entire franchise because they hadn't been introduced yet. Um, and it's just such a different like feel. And a lot of the first Doctor era has that like, this is just a slightly different show because Gallifrey doesn't exist. Time Lords don't exist. None of those things are set in the stone yet that we take for granted as these sort of like pillars of the lore and all that in the background of the franchise. Um, and yeah, it's always very fun when they can bring something like that back and you get to remember, oh yeah, all these things, it used to be the Wild West in what now feel like these sort of super codified like genres and franchises that have been this way since time immemorial because we're, you know, so kind of franchise and IP driven these days in our media. And there was a time where that was not necessarily the case. Absolutely. Uh, and this was the final Mario game released before Mario 64. It was just yep. a few months ahead of time. And I think Mario 64 is the demarcation point where Mario mm -hmm. gets codified because that's where like all the voices are in place. His like 3D model will evolve, but it will broadly be on those proportions, all of those things. And so this was kind of the last stop. I also do just want to sh shout out who did this remake. It's Arte Piazza, who have mm -hmm. done a lot of cool stuff with Square Enix specifically. They did all of those like... Um, a lot of remakes of the Dragon Quest games back in the day for the Nintendo DS or the PlayStation and Super Famicom when they were ported over. Uh, so, like, they did the Dragon Quest 4, 5, 6 remakes on DS that are very highly acclaimed and have been ported to smartphones now. And more recently, they worked on uh, Dragon Quest 11 and some of its extra versions that came out. So, a uh, talented team that does this kind of stuff and uh, cool to see. So, I'm excited to go play more of this one. Now that you're playing Super Mario RPG, are you going to join forces with all the weirdos who were like, Geno's got to be in Smash Brothers. It's Geno or die, motherfuckers. Um, are you are you <laughs> are you one of them now? Well, I feel like the moment has passed because there's no new Smash Brothers on the horizon. But I do get the I mean, it's it was always slightly tongue in cheek, right? The Geno and Smash Brothers stuff for, for some of them. For some people, yeah. For, for <laughs> others. It, it, some of the perverts came out of the woodwork like, no, I've, I've been a Geno hardcore obsessive for my entire life. And yes, Geno's more important than any other character. He must be in Smash Brothers. I think he would be phenomenal for Smash Brothers. He is such a cool character model. He's so unique. And I will say one of the coolest parts of this remake is it has big CGI cutscenes that uh, Digital Foundry's breakdown of this game was fascinating because they are video files. They're not like mm -hmm. in-engine, but the transition from them into gameplay is like Digital Foundry said the smoothest they've ever seen. And like you can't well, yeah, really they, tell. Yeah, because yeah. the video playback is at 60 frames per second, which is yeah. uncommon for whatever reason amongst right. games that typically... Sometimes they're at 24 frames per second, which just makes no fucking sense. Uh, but yes, yes it is, it is oh. interesting that, that they took the time to make sure that the videos were of extremely high quality and played back at the same frame rate as the game. 
they're also just compressed like really well there's none of that like you go over and you're seeing compression artifacts on the yeah. video which like even today you get sometimes um and so yeah they look phenomenal but like Geno's introduction and all of the scenes around him like absolutely you watch it and you're like this is making up for the lost Geno smash bros trailer we never had because that kind of feels like what they're giving us with some of those Geno scenes uh so yeah i go for it put him in smash brothers let's do it I, I mean, said, never, don't put Geno in Smash <laughs> Brothers, don't feed these fuckers, uh, it's Mallow, Mallow, or Bust, he's the true, he's the true one, uh, Geno's lame, Mallow is the character, if you're gonna get a Super Mario RPG character, you shouldn't, you should just put Paper Mario in fucking Smash Brothers, I don't know how they never did that, you got Toon Link, yes. put Paper Mario in there, um, but if you're not gonna do that, put Mallow, never put Geno in, ever. <laughs> I am looking forward to, before the Paper Mario Thousand Year Door remake comes out, Paper Mario is on Switch via the N64 app, and Mario & Luigi Superstar Saga is on Switch via GBA, and I'd love to try to take the time to play through all of those again, um, up to Thousand Year Door, because that's like the original procession of Mario RPG titles, mm -hmm. and they're great. Like, those early Mario RPG yeah. games are tremendous. Uh, all of them, and and this one is the weirdest of them, so it's wonderful. Although, Paper Mario is also super weird. We take it for granted now. Oh, yeah. But, like, Paper Mario... Uh, do you remember the trailers? I can never get them out of my head that mm -hmm. came out in the U.S. with that game where it was like Bowser feeding Peach into a shredder. If you've yes. never seen those ads, those TV ads for Paper Mario, go look them up. They will haunt your dreams forever. Yeah, because in, in Paper Mario, Bowser's a fucking bad guy. That's one of the yes. that's one of the craziest things about Mario RPG. Bowser's not the villain. He's the yes. fucking becomes a party member in that game. It's wild. Well, fun. I mean, and that's a super common thing in later Mario RPG games, too. You know, like Bowser's Inside Story and um, all sorts of Mario games have, have played with that. But yes, he is, he is the big bad of Paper Mario. Anyway, we will do our big Paper Mario retrospective next year. Possibly. Maybe not. Sure, why not? I like that game. <laughs> it's a great game. Sean, do you have any other stuff? Yes, there's one other thing I want to talk about, um, uh, which I have... You know, we talked about last week uh, that now I have to pay absolutely out the fucking ass for Disney Plus now, and I'm <laughs> extremely salty about it still. Um, but that meant that I got to watch uh, the new Star Wars miniseries, Star Wars Ahsoka, uh, directed by Dave Filoni and created by Dave Filoni. Of course, is it ex effectively as Star Wars Rebels 2 um, is sort of is what it is in a narrative sense, but it's the live action continuation generally of the story of Star Wars Rebels while also being sort of like it's it's very close in terms of the world of the Mandalorian shows, right? It's kind of like part of this like mini little felony live action thing that is being put together. Um, and I fucking loved it. I think that this Ahsoka show is fantastic. I don't it is hard for me to know how you approach it if you don't know the characters already. Like I think you can enjoy it, um, but there's obviously will be some stuff that you miss. Uh, but especially if you have seen Star Wars Rebels, if you know those characters, I think this is a fucking amazing continuation of that story while also giving you a very different kind of look at it by shifting things into live action. It kind of changes the perspective and gives you a very different take on some of the characters in a way that I really enjoyed. So yeah, Ahsoka, it is set basically, I think it's supposed to be concurrent to Mandalorian season three, um, but it is a story of Ahsoka trying to find um, where Admiral Thrawn has gone and by extension where Ezra Bridger, who is the protagonist character of Rebels, where they are because at the end of Rebels, spoilers, but it's the premise of the show, so you can't be spoiled anymore. If you watch Ahsoka, you already know this. Um, Thrawn and Ezra were basically teleported 
or they went through a hyperspace lane to somewhere that they don't know where the fuck they went to, um, strongly implied at the time that they left the galaxy and it is confirmed in the show that they are in another galaxy, which is a different galaxy far, far away. Um, so that is sort of the, the setup of the show is that Ahsoka finally has a lead on where Thrawn is, um, which is picking up from her episode of Mandalorian. She, if you remember, fights the one lady who is a major character in this as well and gets some information from her. Um, and that's kind of where you pick up is her using that to try to figure out where Thrawn is. And then by extension, it pulls in the other um, surviving Rebels characters like Sabine, um, who is the Mandalorian girl from that show, um, Hira Syndulla, who's in this, um, and she's kind of working with the New Republic, and there's a lot of New Republic stuff in it. Um, and then ultimately they do find Ezra and they find Thrawn and there's a whole second half of the show is dealing with those characters. But it is a a amazing show. I think the acting across the board is phenomenal. Like Rosario Dawson does an incredible performance of Ahsoka, which I think is a really, really hard character to play for this show because this is Ahsoka who is at the end of her sort of training, right? She is much older she is extremely experienced. She's very hardened and she's a very stoic character. And that kind of stoic character is really hard to play because you have to communicate so much purely with body language and with like how you walk around in the scene, how you hold yourself and like with a glance has to communicate so much about um, who this person is and what they're thinking and what they're feeling. And I think Rosario Dawson just is incredible um at evoking a lot of what you remember of ahsoka from the older shows but also speaking so much to how much she has changed and grown up in the intervening years to become this person who is so kind of cut off and so hardened by her experiences and a big part of the theme of the show is about her trying to find a way to hold on to some of like what these experiences of you know she has lived through two massive wars the clone wars and the rebellion she's gone through all of this bullshit she's having to have to dealt with all the stuff with anakin she needs to hold on to some of what those experiences have given her but also be able to sort of lighten the load on herself and let go of some of these things and that's a big part of the theme of the show is how do you do that how do you both sort of be this sort of master jedi type person she's not literally a jedi anymore but how do you be this sort of master warrior who is fighting for these bigger causes and these bigger things and the greater good while also being able to be a person at the same time. I mean, part of that is that they have brought back Sabine, who is a character from rebels, but the most interesting choice they've made is that in the intervening years of stuff, you didn't see with these characters, Ahsoka took Sabine on as an apprentice, um, basically a Padawan, which is very fascinating because Sabine is not a character who can really use the force. She's not force sensitive in any way. And I love that what the show is diving into is territory in Star Wars that has always felt would be very fascinating, but has never actually really been covered, which is what is it like if you want to try to train someone as a Jedi who is not plucked from their family when they were a, an infant because they displayed having magic fucking powers, right? This is a normal person who's like, maybe she was like 18 or 19 years old when she decided to get trained. Um, who has displayed no aptitude whatsoever for the Force. And the David Tennant droid character at one point just straight up tells her, of all of the, like, hundreds of thousands of Jedi that I have trained in my thousands of years of service in the Jedi Order, you are, without the doubt, the worst. Like, she has absolutely no aptitude for the mystical bullshit side of being a Jedi. But, 
you know, you feel with Ahsoka, she's trying to prove that that's not what being a Jedi is, that that's not what it's about. It's about having a sense of right and wrong. It's about having discipline. It's about having the courage to make a difference. Those are the things of what it is to be a Jedi. Having a lightsaber and using the Force are a nice bonus. Um, and that also, even if you're not talented with the Force, anyone can use it. And Sabine can use it a little bit. She's just not a fucking prodigy. And so that's a whole side of the story that I think I love in that the series is kind of about Ahsoka learning a lot about herself by trying to pass on these messages to Sabine, try to figure out how to deal with her baggage with Anakin um, while trying to be a master to this person that is a totally different kind of relationship than any Jedi has ever had with their Padawan. And then amongst all that, you also have, I have to shout out fucking Lars Mikkelsen, who plays Thrawn, who's in the last three episodes of the show. He played the character vocally on the Rebels cartoon, and he gets to play him live action here as well. And it's just the fucking best. If you watched Rebels and you liked Thrawn, oh my god, he gets so much amazing stuff. The first big scene with Thrawn is just perfect at introducing to you why this character is a very different villain for Star Wars. Because you have Ahsoka does a kind of classic Star Wars thing. It calls back to Empire Strikes Back where she's trying to avoid all these enemy ships and so she flies into this asteroid belt kind of thing to get away from them. The same thing that Han Solo does in Empire Strikes Back. While that's happening, Thrawn learns that, okay, there's this Jedi here. She's Ahsoka Tano. He tells his assistant, like, give me everything you have on Ahsoka Tano. He looks at her file, immediately sees that she was Anakin Skywalker's apprentice and without missing beat, he just says, oh, pull back all the fighters. Just pull them all back. There's no point in this. Like, if she trained under Anakin Skywalker, we're not going to get a bunch of our bozos are not going to go and be better at her through flying through this insane debris field around the planet. Let's pull back. Let's lure her into a false sense of security. And you just get immediately how he is so different. The practical strategies that he employs in the way in which he never for one second ever underestimates his opponents. Um, and he takes them deathly seriously. Um, and he respects them. And, and by respecting them is how he's able to sort of devise strategies against them. And it's such a different kind of characterization than the sort of Star Wars villain you're used to, which is they're trapped by their own ego and their arrogance and their sense of power and how they are untouchable. And so they will just throw squadrons of TIE fighters at the problem because how could one puny Jedi ever stand against us? He, he is not on that bullshit. Like he knows what's up. Um, and seeing that sort of game of chess between ah Ahsoka and Thrawn in the last couple of episodes, uh, it's just absolutely fantastic. So I love this show. Um, it's got some amazing lightsaber fights. If you like samurai movie style um, choreography, they very deliberately make it like not like Star Wars has typically done where there's a couple of vague it's sort of samurai-esque. They really sort of go pretty hardcore into that with the stances and the movement. If you liked the fight in Rebels between Obi-Wan and Darth Maul, that is basically the sort of like way in which they think through the action in this show. It's a lot of like very quick, decisive movements and a lot of positioning and seeing the characters sizing each other up and coming up with strategies. So on the action side, it's phenomenal. On the character side, it's phenomenal. It looks fucking great. I think, um, you know, Filoni has always been a great director in animation in the couple of episodes he did of Mandalorian look great. He does even more of um, Ahsoka. And I think he's just a very, very skilled director, especially at evoking the visual language of Star Wars from the films. Um, the, just the whole team is great across the board. So especially if you liked Rebels, you should watch Ahsoka. Even if you didn't, I would still maybe give Ahsoka a try 
Um, because I because I think you can really enjoy it even without watching Rebels. It's just hard for me to say because I obviously don't I can't see it in that way. But great show. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet because I have not seen the 11 seasons of television leading up to it. Seven for Clone Wars and four for Rebels. But, you know, I definitely from people who had like like you, Sean, were in the weeds with all of that animated stuff. I think most people had the reaction you had, which was over the moon. I heard from a lot of people on Twitter like that. And then I think from the I've only seen live action Star Wars crowd, it was a lot more mixed. And I think Mm -hmm. it's probably I'd be curious, having not seen a lot of that stuff. I mean, I know Ahsoka from the bits of Clone Wars I have seen, obviously, but I don't I have not been in the weeds with some of the like rebel stuff. I've only seen clips of that show. Uh, I don't know. I could not find Ezra Bridger in a lineup, for instance. Although I do yes. know what Admiral Thrawn looks like. Yes, I think I think the Ezra part of it is probably the part that is the hardest to... I think the thing that they should have done is at the very beginning of the show, do a, like, dramatization or whatever. Like, do a, a live-action version of the ending of Rebels. Because the notion of, oh, there was this hero in the Rebellion and this villain um, for the Empire who early on in the conflict were lost out in space and we are trying to find them. Like, that is not a thing that you need to watch a show that precedes that story for that to be an interesting story. That's an interesting story in its own right. And I think they mostly pull it off. um, But there are like, I think they lean a little bit too much on some of the specifics of how that happened in a way that if you didn't watch the show, you might be slightly confused um, but if I think they just showed you the scene, basically, and obviously recreated in live action, I think that would be enough to solve it. But again, I think it, it is, I suspect that it is more than follow-able, follow-able enough that those little references are not, as long as you sort of like don't let yourself get confused and like get caught up on weird proper nouns too much and just go with the flow, the show explains everything that's relevant to the story within the show. And when Ezra does come on, the guy who plays Ezra Bridger is fucking great, and I think you will immediately love that character because the performance is so charismatic. Um, it's a it's a really great performance from a guy who's not been in a lot of stuff, um, but he just as soon as that character pops up, I think you get why all these people care about him and why he is important and why you would want him back. And also, you know, as soon as you see Thrawn, you're like, oh yeah, no, this dude is. I can see why anyone who knew who this guy was is scared shitless of the, the idea that he could come back when the New Republic is trying to stitch itself together because this guy is intimidating in a way that you really just wish the sequel trilogy had just used Thrawn as a villain character because, man, was that a big problem that the sequel trilogy had is they had no idea what the big bad was. Um, and Thrawn just immediately, it is extremely clear why this is a character who is a threat and and how he kind of connects to that larger narrative of the good guys have won. How do you maintain that victory when you have all these other factions around and someone like a Thrawn who can wrestle all that up together and pose a true threat? Like that serves as a much better skeleton of a plot for a Star Wars sequel film trilogy that could have been made than what we actually got. Well, because Thrawn comes from a series of books that were yes. an imagined sequel trilogy. They were a trilogy exactly. of books, yeah. But, like, I am kind of glad that the uh, movies did not touch Thrawn because it left Thrawn to be done by the talented people like Dave Filoni and not the talentless mm-hmm. hacks like J.J. Abrams because yeah. I'm I'm guessing all the reactions you're having, Sean, you would not have had if J.J. had gotten his, his paws <laughs> no. on Thrawn. 
No, that's, I, that is yeah. a good point. I mean, I don't think he would have uh, let Lars Mikkelsen play him, and it was just no. been like a fucking tragedy. Because Lars Mikkelsen did him on Rebels, right? Yes. Yeah. So it is kind of cool how many people they were able to get from the animated shows. Some of them, like obviously, wouldn't have made sense. Like you needed to get someone like Rosario Dawson for Ahsoka just because of like age and physicality and everything. But it is cool that they got some of the other people on there. Um, all right. I have one other piece of stuff to talk about this week before we move on to Godzilla and Doctor Who, and that is I had a fun week this week because I got to give a lecture about Lupin the Third in my uh, film studies class uh, that I'm teaching. So let me back up and explain this. This was supposed to be so I'm TAing right now for Intro to Film, which is our big 120 person like freshman lecture for incoming majors, and uh, so it's a lot of people, me and one other TA, and then the professor and. We were going to have this week was set to be on genre writ large. And early in the semester, uh, the professor realized that the students all like like animation and wanted to do something with animation. And I am the most knowledgeable person about animation in our department. Uh, and so he asked me, like, hey, would you want to put something together? And we knew the new Hayao Miyazaki movie, The Boy and the Heron, was coming out. It's coming out next week, for those who don't know. Um, he said, why don't we do something with Hayao Miyazaki? You know a lot about him. And I said, uh, and he said, think about that and let me know. And I said, okay. And then I went back to my office and sat down. And I went, we just did a whole podcast season on Loop on the Third. And I literally got back up and went back into his office. Our offices are next door. And I said, we should do Castle of Cagliostro. And he said, what's that? And I said, it's from 1979. <laughs> I gave him the details. Um, but it was like, I just have a ton of pages of research on Castle of Cagliostro because of the loop on the third season we did for Japanimation Station that I could just take and make into a lecture. So we showed them Castle of Cagliostro Monday night. Uh, it was very fun. Uh, they, you know, that movie does not really need any introduction. Uh, uh -huh. if, if you like, because so many people got into Lupin through that movie, I wasn't worried about like people not knowing who Jigen was or anything. But I still had a little bit of anxiety, and that melted away because people were like laughing from the very beginning when all the cars are cut apart in the parking lot of the casino, and it's implied if you know Lupin that Goemon did that, although you don't see him. And then just like people were on board, people fell in love with Jigen. He's got so many good poses in the first half hour of that movie. Uh, uh, and yeah, people were totally into it. They were very shocked at like the scene where Fujiko comes out and just starts chucking grenades. That's and that great. was great. Um, you know, <laughs> they were maybe expecting like, oh, she's like the maid lady in the castle because like, they don't know Lupin. They don't know this is yes. Fujiko Mine. And so she comes out guns, literally guns blazing. People were into it. So people really enjoyed the movie. The one thing was I was using my Japanese Blu-ray because it's the best looking version of the movie I have. The subtitle, subtitles on that one, though, they're mostly good. They're a little out of date because they do the thing where there are all the counterfeit bills in that movie. And in older translations, they were often translated as goat bills. And it's supposed to be gothic. And it's like an understandable right. mistake because the way the Japanese characters say it is goto. And there's all this goat imagery in the movie, which is probably an intentional pun on Miyazaki's part. Mm -hmm. But they don't. if they were saying goat, they would have said yagi. They didn't mean goat they meant gothic as in visigoth and so people were like there's a line where like i think the villain says i have the pr proud blood of the goat flowing through my veins and everyone kind of tittered at that like what the fuck does that mean and so i did have to add a slide to my presentation for wednesday just going uh though they mean like the visigoths that's what's with the whole roman city at the end uh i had just forgotten that that disc had that uh -huh. old translation so that was kind of funny but then yeah on wednesday then i did the lecture and got to talk about i basically did i took our notes 
from that episode, like the history preamble section, and turned that into kind of a lecture with visuals, with some extra information to tell them about what Lupin is and where that comes from, kind of how... I basically centered it on Hayao Miyazaki, Yasuo Otsuka, and a little bit of Isao Takahata, who doesn't work on Cagliostro, but is important all the way leading up to it, and kind of tracing them from Toei all the way up to Cagliostro and the steps in between. And people were really into it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was like probably the best reception to a lecture like that I've ever had. The students were really into it. You can just tell, I think, a little bit that people are starved for more animation stuff in academia, which is still... Just not a thing that's taught much in film studies. Mm -hmm. um, there's more you know, literature on it, but like we're thinking about adding an intro to animation course, and we've never had one. And University of Iowa Film Department has been around since the 60s, I believe. So, you know, it's kind of crazy. But uh, it was cool, it was gratifying, and it is yet another example, Sean, of me just smuggling our weird podcast obsessions into the University of Iowa's curriculum. Uh, between this and my whole giant robots class I did on Gundam, it's great. I can't wait until you do your endless eight Suzumi Haruhi, uh semester class, uh, where that's just all you do is you just watch the endless eight. Um, yeah, I mean, Castle of Cagliostro is like the most crowd pleasing movie you can yes. pick. You know, I mean, it's just it's hard to imagine someone not having fun watching that movie. I mean, you could you could watch it in Japanese without the subtitles and not be able to understand what anyone is saying. And you would still have a good time watching that movie because it's in the same way that you could just watch Tom and Jerry or something, you know, it's got such a, and this is true of all the great Lupin stuff. It's got a real Looney Tunes quality to it. Um, yeah. that is so infectious and fun. Um, that, yes, yeah, so I'm not surprised that it went over extremely well. Yeah, but it was, it was gratifying. That's a movie I've always wanted to show in a class like that. It was cool to get to do it. And, you know, a lot a lot of our podcast stuff has spilled out into my academia to degrees that you know, Sean, but our listeners don't even to some stuff. Um, but like, you know, I gave a conference talk earlier this year on this thing you helped me with about the history of Gundam and like, you know, did that. And so there's there's been a lot and uh, there's more more to come um, because the podcast is where I do a lot of the raw thinking that gets turned into other stuff, too. So it's fun. And yeah, the, if, if they would let me do an Endless 8 class, fuck it. Just like every screening as we watch, let's see, we could do four, I think, a screening. And we just alternate. Week one is the first four. Week two is the second four. And then we just go back and forth for 16 weeks. Let's there do you it. Go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Did, where, was there a moment where you were tempted to show them the mystery of Mamo instead of Castle of Cagliostro? <laughs> No, because this the, the <laughs> assignment was Miyazaki-specific, which I understand with, like, he's a filmmaker they know and all that. Mama would have been a bigger reach. It's a it's an oh, equally God. great movie, but, like, you you do, I think, need to know who, like, Lupin and Jigen and everyone are for that one. Yes. No, I would, I would <laughs> never show Mystery of Mama to just, like, an audience of random uh, freshmen, college freshmen without any prep work at all, um, that would, no, that would be, it would be well, hilarious. I would just want to know the reaction to the, the match cut at the end of that movie with the nipple. That's just, that's, that's the only reason I would show is like, I just want to know what, how do they respond to this? The greatest match yes. cut in the history of cinema. It is. I mean, I think we should replace, you know, that in the, uh, the match cuts are always taught with the scene from 2001, yeah. you know, the bone turning into the satellite. Fuck that. Stanley Kubrick ain't shit on the moment from the end of Mystery of Mama where Lupin presses the nipple and it becomes the nuclear bombs. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say my students, the one problem they had with the movie this is like a sensitivity people have now that I think is like is is in some ways appropriate and in some ways is a little weird with some movies. But like 
the fact that even though Lupin and Clarice do not have a romantic relationship in the movie, the fact that he knew her as a kid, some people were like, that's, that's weird. That's like too uh. age inappropriate. And like, so I'm like, yeah, I probably shouldn't have showed Mystery of Mamo. I'm not sure how they would have reacted to the Heil Hitler moment and all of that <laughs> uh, if, if they had trouble with that. But yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I can see, again, like, I don't think it's like an actual issue with Cagliostro, but I can see why you'd raise an eyebrow at it. Because there is like a certain, you know, intimacy in the scene where he gets into yes. her bedroom and stuff to rescue her. Like, there's, there's, there's a thing there for sure. Yeah. And I can see why that would set people's radar off. Yes, but if if I was just I'm just saying if it would set the radar off with that mystery of Mamo, I might oh, yeah. have a riot on my hands. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, Sean, do you want to talk about some Godzilla? Oh my God, Jonathan, let's talk about Godzilla. All right, we'll do Godzilla here. Spoilers for Godzilla minus one. If you want to hear the Doctor Who discussion, we'll do that at the end. Again, look at the timestamps if you want more details. Sean, this is the first new live-action Toho Godzilla movie since Shin Godzilla, which you and I both think is one of the best movies of its decade. It's oh, yeah. phenomenal. And now we've got this one. Why don't you give us the backstory on this one, and then we can give some reactions. Yeah, so, I mean, as you're saying, this is um, the first proper Toho Godzilla movie. Obviously, we've had the legendary movies and stuff going on at the same time, but those are a different thing. But this is the first one in seven years since Shin Godzilla in 2016, which, thinking about that that movie came out that long ago, makes me feel fucking ancient. Um, but, yeah, this one is directed by Yamazaki Takashi, um, who is a director with an absolutely just fascinating career, right? Because in one thing important to understand about this movie is he both directed it and he was also um, sort of the primary visual super effects advisor and he, or supervisor, and he did the script. So this is a Yamazaki ass uh, movie. Um, he is best known for his trilogy of films based on a manga series called Always Sunset on Third Street. Um, that's particularly notable because the second one of those movies, which came out in 2007, features a scene where one of the main characters, like, kind of hallucinates. Yes, it's not, it's not hallucination. He kind of daydreams and imagines Godzilla attacking the city. Um, and it was a very notable sequence in Godzilla fan communities because at that point, there had not been a Godzilla movie in three years. That was Godzilla Final Wars from 2004 was the previous Toho Godzilla film. Um, and so you have this one little scene and it's a great scene. People should look it up because you will see the DNA between that scene and Godzilla minus one very clearly. Um, and it's also a fully CG Godzilla, which had never been done. Um, at least in terms of there was no costume or whatsoever made at all. You had CG replacements for Godzilla in places, obviously the American one, but this was a, this is only existed truly as purely a CG creation. Um, and so that scene, uh, sort of set the Godzilla fan community ablaze or like, oh my God. Uh, we were in a fucking desert and we'd be in the desert for Godzilla for a long time after that as well. But obviously Yamazaki is a guy who loves Godzilla and had this idea and wanted, wanted to make a Godzilla movie. Um, he goes and makes like a bunch of interesting films. He made the live action adaptation of Space Battleship Yamato. He made the CG uh, Draimon movie Stand By Me Draimon and its sequel. Um, and then in 2019, he made a movie called The Great War of Archimedes, also based on a manga that is about... Um, the creation of the actual battleship Yamato, the non-space battleship Yamato. <laughs> For people who don't know, Yamato was a real battleship in World War II in Japan, um, which is relevant to Godzilla Minus One because a lot of the ship stuff in Godzilla Minus One is all 
historical accurate um, because he's very interested in that kind of stuff. And then he also made the CG uh, Dragon Quest movie, Dragon Quest Your Story, and the CG Lupin movie, Lupin the Third, the First, in 2019. So just like a very eclectic career that involves both human dramas, like Always Sunset on Third Street, and these like big elaborate CG films, um, either movies driven that are um, live action, but driven by a lot of CG effects like Space Battleship Yamato, or purely CG movies like Lupin the Third, the First. Um, and so... You know, he made all those movies, is a very talented, very well-respected director. And after Shin Godzilla, Toho was wanting to figure out what the fuck do we do? How do you follow up that movie? Because we like Shin Godzilla. Anyone who's seen Shin Godzilla and knows their shit likes Shin Godzilla. But in Japan, Shin Godzilla was like a titanic, massive fucking hit. It won a bunch of awards. It was a huge box office success. So it's a big, big project to follow up on. Um, and so basically they were trying to find a director that could deal with this. And then the producer Ichikawa Minami for this movie, um, approached Yamazaki and basically said like, Hey, like how about making a Godzilla movie? Um, and Yamazaki, the first thing he did was he, I watched a big interview with him in Japanese. So I, I learned a bit about the production of the movie. The, one of the main things he wanted to do was set the movie in, um, shortly after the end of the war, which is before the original Godzilla movie was set. The original Godzilla was 1954. This movie set predominantly in 1947. Um, and that was actually a taboo for Toho. For people who don't know, Godzilla movies are basically always set in the year that they are created or maybe one to two years off from when the movie came out. And there had never been a Godzilla movie that was set before the original film was made. Um, and so this was the first time that that ever happened. And that was like kind of a thing you had to get through a bunch of producers, apparently at Toho, because they're like, I don't know, that's, we've never done that before. It's like, <laughs> it'll be fine. Um, this is not only is this the first one set before the original movie, this is the first period piece Godzilla movie, um, bar none, um, which sets it apart. And then Yamazaki, when he sat down to create the screenplay, he spent three years writing the screenplay. One of the reasons why it took a very long time for this movie to come out. It took him a long time to sort of come up with exactly what you do with this movie. And then also, obviously, COVID-19 hit in the middle of all this going on. So that delayed the production as well. But in trying to make the movie, he more or less intentionally decided, let me go as far away from Shin Godzilla as possible. And when you look at Godzilla Minus One, um, Yamazaki basically pointed out it's kind of the opposite movie. Um, where Shin Godzilla is entirely about the government. Godzilla Minus One is about the citizens. Where Shin Godzilla is all about like battling on the land, Godzilla Minus One is all about battling on the sea. Shin Godzilla is set in the present day, Godzilla Minus One is set in the past. Um, and so all the, or Shin Godzilla is, tries to sort of like, it sort of rings out all of the sort of emotional drama of the movie and it's very dry and satirical. Godzilla Minus One is the most dramatic Godzilla movie there is and has the most sort of like thick human drama component. So he made a sort of polar opposite movie to Shin Godzilla that leans into all the experience that Yamazaki has had as well as him deciding to do a full CG Godzilla, not even trying to do the Shin Godzilla thing of making some like physical props and then modeling all of your CG off of those physical props to make it look predominantly like it was a practical effect, even when it was a scene in CG. This Godzilla is purely a CG creation. In every scene in the movie, it is a purely CG creature. Um, and again, he was the VFX supervisor, supervisor for the film. So that sort of contributed to a very long development of this movie. It has finally come out. It is fucking amazing it is one of the best godzilla movies ever made it is crazy to me that we are um now you know uh basically two movies deep into what feels like this new era of godzilla between shin godzilla and this one and both of them 
are in competition with the original Godzilla movie as being one of the best. Like if you made a top three Godzilla movies in some order, it's Godzilla 1954, Shin Godzilla, and Godzilla minus one. Uh, and I've seen all of them multiple times. Other than this one, I've only seen once. Um, so I feel qualified to say this is clearly one of the best Godzilla movies ever made. Well, from the ones I've seen, which is fewer than you, although probably more than a lot of people listening, uh, I would agree. Uh, if you asked me to pick right now between this and Shin Godzilla, I would say, fuck off. I couldn't yeah. do that right now. But they are. But that's the thing. These movies, it kind of boggles my mind that either exists because they're both doing. And I rewatched Shin Godzilla last night just for fun. And it is like they both feel like it's crazy that they exist on like the budgets they had on just I think the boldness of some of what they are doing thematically and stylistically but they are such different movies they're such different movies as you noted they're like in many ways like polar opposites uh kind of almost intentionally so but they are like kind of equally engaged with like politics mm -hmm. and history and culture and like you know using Godzilla to say all these other things in such fascinating ways um and they are both you know, kind of reworkings of that original Godzilla film in so much as they are about a solo Godzilla who is very monstrous, you know, coming on shore and destroying shit, right? Um, which most Toho Godzilla movies, if you are not familiar, are not that. Most Toho Godzilla movies are him fighting other monsters and often in a more heroic capacity. Yeah, I mean, before this, there were only two solo Godzilla films, the original 1954 Godzilla and then Return of Godzilla from 1984, which was also a movie that came out after a long hiatus for the series, almost um, kind of like a bring it back to basics. So yeah, it is it is very fascinating to see this, these two different movies that are the opposites in terms of the specifics of the approach, but the big picture idea for them is very similar bringing it back to the core of the character the way that the 1954 movie treated godzilla um and as you say very like sort of politically and historically informed um for shin godzilla you know it's so much about the 2014 fukushima nuclear disaster and this movie it's specifically about um world war ii though i think you can obviously read it bigger than that and then Godzilla is used in this very powerful, very complicated, symbolic way in the way that the original movie was. That you can't boil Godzilla down into a one-for-one. One. It's not just, ah, he just is the nuclear bomb, or ah, he is just war. There's a lot wrapped into the identity of Godzilla as a symbolic construction on screen um, that's so rich and dense and thick that allows you to read it through so many different lenses that overlap on top of each other. Um, and I think that is like the key strength of these three Godzilla movies, the original Shin Godzilla and this one, is the specific way in which Godzilla is used as a concept more so than he is a character, which is how he's typically treated as he is either the bad guy of the movie or he is the good guy of the movie. Godzilla's not even the antagonist. It's, he ascends beyond the concept of a character role in terms of how he functions in the film. Um, and I think that's one of those real strengths here is not just that they do that, but that they know how to use that to its greatest effect for the uh, film's story. Yeah, absolutely. Um but, you know, I, I had heard a lot of the early hype on this movie before I went to see it was like just how incredible the effects and the scope of it are and all of that. And that is absolutely true. And we will talk about that. The thing that took me aback with Godzilla Minus One is the human drama because mm -hmm. 
as you say, it's like it's almost unfair to say this has the best human drama of any Godzilla movie because there's no other Godzilla movie that's trying to do it on this level yep. where like, you know, a lot of Godzilla movies have sort of your functional cast of characters or they do the kind of cast of thousands things where there's a lot of characters reacting to the situation. Most obviously in Shin Godzilla where there is, I think, literally a cast of thousands uh-huh. if you were to break it down. But like even the original Godzilla, it has some characters you come to know pretty well, but it has a lot of people reacting to the situation. This is like you have a clear protagonist who is there the whole time who we get to know on this like psychologically complex level and then a small group of characters around him and there is like a long stretch once he gets off the island and back home to the destroyed Tokyo and he's just rebuilding his life that is just about watching people rebuild in the wake of World War II. And it is just like a phenomenal period piece movie where I would happily keep watching if Godzilla never appeared again. It would make the beginning of the movie kind of weird, but it would like work because the character drama, just like watching this person dealing with a lot of angst and grief and guilt from the war, trying to rebuild a life is so compelling. And that layer of human drama, layering Godzilla in through that, I think makes the human drama all the richer and Godzilla in some ways more terrifying than ever because what he stands to take away is so vividly drawn for us. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is, you know, this is very much a story about the character Koichi uh, Shishima played by the actor Yunosuke Kamiki who has a fucking fascinating career also. He's, he, he's incredible, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he just delivers this amazing performance. But it is it is very much a character piece about this guy, right? And obviously it starts to expand the, that world out. And particularly when you get to the kind of the third act of the movie, he becomes this very kind of closed off character and your focus goes to more of this sort of like collective effort to try to stop Godzilla. But the whole movie is so much about him and his experiences and you see the world of post-war Japan through his eyes reflected through his experiences in his traumas um, and that and that is where then Godzilla is able to intersect with the film that's one of those ways in which he feels like he operates symbolically is as this manifestation specifically of his trauma but then also the trauma of the country as a whole and its anxieties um, and its sort of complicated relationship to you know, the propagandistic empire that they were in this new country they're trying to become, that there's so much baked in there, but you you go through all of it with this one super strong, clear protagonist character that, as you say, is not the way that Godzilla movies or monster movies in general treat their cast. Even when they have a more limited cast than a huge ensemble, they always still are about an ensemble. Like, it always is about, here's like a couple of groups of characters that intersect. And here, you obviously have more than just Koichi. You have other characters in the movie. But he is the most defined, specific, clear, focused protagonist character I've ever seen in any movie like this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, like, while we're here, let's just talk about Ryunosuke Kamiki, because... It's a it's a tremendous performance. That moment when Godzilla has destroyed um, Ginza and he mm-hmm. is falling on his knees screaming is like one of the most uncomfortable displays of emotion I've ever seen in a movie. And this whole film, I was watching it going, I absolutely know this man's voice. Mm-hmm. I know this man's voice really well. And then I looked it up. He's been, his film debut was as Bo the, the big baby in Spirited Away, the Miyazaki movie. 
And then his list of animation credits alone is incredible. He's worked with like all the big <laughs> directors of the 2000s. He was the main character in Summer Wars by Hosoda. He was the main character in Your Name by um, Makoto Shinkai. He was in a bunch of Ghibli movies like Howl's Moving Castle and Arietti. Um, and and he was the guy that um, they tapped to be the adult Shinji at the end of Evangelion 3. Uh, or Evangelion 3 plus 1, which is Evangelion 4. Yes. Uh, you know, and then obviously he has a whole live action career, but he's like, he's, he's young. He's only 30 years old, but he's been acting for over 20 years. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I've seen some of his other live action stuff. Like he's in the live action Rooney Kenshin movies, which are extremely good. He plays the character uh, Seta Sojiro, who is a, sort of like a secondary antagonist that gets introduced in the second one of those movies. And it's a phenomenal performance. Um, so yeah, like whether you're looking at some of that live action stuff or his very kind of storied career in theatrical animation, um, then I know he's also, he's in a shit ton of TV stuff. I know that he's in some, um, this Ron Mon, this TV drama that apparently, um, the lead actress of the movie is also in, um, playing his wife in that, uh, TV show. Minami Hamabe, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is, from what I can tell, based on a lot of the interviews I was looking at, it seems like people really, really like this show. Um, and, and even though they filmed all of their stuff for Godzilla Minus One first, the reaction when the casting came out was after this show started airing. So everyone's like, ah, it's the, the two people from Ronman. Oh my God, they're in a Godzilla movie. Um, which is <laughs> kind of funny how that works out. But yeah, I mean, it's just, he's a very, very talented actor who is very young that has done a shit ton of stuff. Um, and just gives this unbelievably good performance in this movie. Well, because you're, I mean, God, you are, it's literally like the most a Godzilla movie has ever asked of a human actor to do, right? Oh, yeah, like, because, and it's like, I don't know if you could pull this movie off if you didn't have some kind of like generational talent, which he clearly is at its center. Someone who is young, he's the age this character would be as the movie goes along, but like he has those 20 some years of acting experience under his belt. And so you have this like just deep well to pull on. And, and like I said, just, I mean, the first scene on Odo Island is striking in a bunch of ways, mm -hmm. but it is like what happens after that when he gets back and it is just several scenes of him, you know, moving through the broken Tokyo and this little story that, you know, pops up with him saving this uh, baby and then finding the baby belongs to this woman who's kind of running around stealing things. And then he finds out they're not even related. And then they kind of start building a life together in this home he finds. And like that alone is such a compelling story without any monster stuff on top of it. And it just makes the movie that follows so rich. And then, of course, the main angst that this character has that he was a uh, assigned to be a kamikaze pilot and he decided not to go through with it and he lands on odo island and that is when godzilla attacks and he has this second moment of hesitation where he doesn't shoot at godzilla and i was very curious at this as this started i'm like oh this could go one of two ways this is either going to be uncomfortably nationalist or this is going to be like a super bold leftist movie mm -hmm. <laughs> and it is super bold in in what the movie ultimately is is this you know, full-throated rejection of the entire logic of the kamikaze, you know, pilot, but also the entire sort of wartime regime. And obviously that's applicable to a lot of other things as well. But the way that is seated throughout the entire movie and this character who loses and loses and loses and is asked, you know, how can you go on and live? You know, these are themes that I think if you are an anime viewer, you've seen a lot. You know, this mm -hmm. movie I think feels very... Uh, Ghibli-esque and a lot of those themes it's doing. I mean, it literally has a lot of similarities with Miyazaki's Wind Rises specifically. Um, 
And I know he cited those as, as Takashi Yamazaki has cited those as uh, inspirations. But like, you know, it, it, it's in conversation, I think, with, you know, stuff like Makoto Shinkai's recent movies, like Suzume from this year has a lot of this in it. And it's just, it's a, it's a vein of Japanese storytelling that uh, I do think is to some degree unique to Japan that I have always found like super compelling. And I think this movie vocalizes that, particularly because it is so explicit about its historical reference, like so beautifully. Yeah, and that he's he's you know I think clearly pulling on other sort of like modern works that are also interested in looking at these concepts or like with the Wind Rises looking at the specific time period. Um, but he's also you can see him pulling on fiction of the era, right? Of like post-war right. Japan in literature um, as like this very rich um, sort of and and in cinema as well of telling these kinds of stories of these like kind of broken families that are being hobbled back together somehow. Um, and it's just like, I mean, it, it is very much a movie that if you wanted to, he, this could have just been a human drama, right? You could take the Godzilla part out of it, um, reconstruct those elements of what the plot functions that Godzilla serves and find something else to fill those functions. Um, because that core storyline and that core human character is so compelling in the ideas you're working through of this nation that has been ripped to pieces, um, you know, where the, their government has been completely dismantled. They're starting to have to come to terms with the full nature of what that government did to them, to like the normal people living their lives, while also having to sort of live under this foreign occupation effectively by MacArthur. And yes. sort of how how do you sort of build your life in this rubble when all of that is going on at the same time you have no stability you know like what kind of work can you get that's not going to get you killed the fact that he you know starts working as someone trying to take care of mines um and uh dismantled mines in tokyo bay uh is such a great kind of narrative device for the movie uh but all of that stuff um is so effective and feels like it is pulling on a lot of other kinds of stories that were told like contemporarily in that time period um, and leaning on those things, you know, because he's incredibly well read on that time period, whether it's like some of that human stuff or it's all the kind of technical detail of the various battleships and the planes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and like all of that is extremely well researched and extremely authentic. Um, and so there's a true authenticity to how all those different pieces come together to tell the story. Yeah, the, the film referent for me that I thought of most is the director Keisuke Kinoshita, uh, who is most famous for his post-war Ballad of Narayama film, but he made a lot of movies during and immediately after World War II, sometimes under constraints of like propagandistic mm -hmm. regimes, but often worked in some pretty like like movies that today we look at like how did that get past the japanese huh. censors the one that is most like that if you've never seen it is called army it's from 1944 so the year before the war ended and and that one like if you're talking about like families kind of um rebuilding themselves and living through you know the uh, the trauma and the chaos of the time that's a beautiful portrait of that um but yeah i mean and i'm more familiar with the film reference than the literary one but like clearly this movie is incredibly well read and just like it's also like worth saying i think a lot of the visual effects 
praise mm-hmm. will go to like Godzilla and the creature effects, which are incredible. The period detail of this movie is off the charts. Like it's yeah. a really great realization of, you know, period Tokyo and everything in a way that feels very all encompassing. You know, you can tell sometimes when things are CGI extended, like in Ginza, but like not in a distracting way. It's, it's really beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, the effects across the movie are so incredibly well done. As, as you say, you want to focus on the big monster effects that obviously are CG and they're very cool and, and crazy, but the effects work in the production design of the movie across the board is so well done that you don't think about the fact that the, some of the sets have to be extended with CGI, right? And there's also like, there's a huge amount of practical work done as well. Yes. Like a lot of the ship stuff is all real. Like they actually filmed on the ocean um, with like actual giant model ships and stuff like that. Um, you know, they built a lot of really awesome looking sets and stuff um, for the different locations in the movie. So it's not a like, you know, it's not a modern Marvel movie where the entire thing is set on some sort of sound soundstage with a bunch of LED screens around the actors. And they have to pretend that they're not just standing on a slightly <laughs> like slanted floor with a different background behind them um, for the entire movie. There's a lot of uh, blending of various different effects disciplines here to make the whole film come alive. Oh, you can totally tell in every scene. Like, there is a practical element to pretty much everything you're seeing, even if, like, there's a lot of CGI around it. You know, you will often see Godzilla do something, and then you will cut to something where you can tell, like, oh, these people who are falling off this building, this is a partial set on a gimbal that is, like, tilting them, and then they're extending around that with some CGI. So they're very good about that. This is actually something Sheen Godzilla is also very good about, watching that last night. Um, But combining those two in a very precise way uh, is very cool. And those scenes at sea, particularly when it is just the people, uh, you know, uh, Koichi's kind of group who are getting the mines... It's so much. It's so Spielberg's Jaws. Yes. Like, and and I I saw after I watched the movie, I looked it up, and Takashi Yamazaki has said that was an influence. But like, it's you so get that feeling if it's a couple of guys out on this boat, middle of nowhere, against impossible odds, and like the the camaraderie you get, the sense of isolation, but also kind of the natural beauty of the water and everything. They're just super cool scenes, and especially considering like one of the inciting incidents for 1954 Godzilla is a ship that like a, a little like fishing vessel that was affected by radiation and that was one of the things that gave them the idea for Godzilla uh it's it's I don't know if there is another Godzilla movie that has this much just on sea stuff with characters like that because it's really cool to see and then of course having a lot of you know sea combat with Godzilla is wonderful that was actually one of my favorite things in the American King Kong versus Godzilla where you had uh the big battle that they have on the ships so I liked seeing more of that here yeah, it definitely the the ocean stuff is emphasized here more than it is in most of your Godzilla movies. Obviously, it always plays an element because that's where Godzilla comes out of to go fuck up the land. Um, but yeah, there's a real emphasis on the ships and the sea and being out there, um, which just adds a very different kind of flavor to the movie. And yes, you have a very elaborate big Jaws scene. I mean, down to the like, oh, we got to put a thing in his mouth and then shoot it with a gun, right? It's like, it's very specifically Jaws, but in a way that feels like a good homage. Because it also, I think this movie is a demonstration of a lot of the other things from Jaws of like, you know, the very deliberate way in which it deploys Godzilla. Um, You know, Godzilla is only in basically like three C he only is majorly featured in about three sequences in the movie. Um, there's like a bunch of little other minor appearances, um, but it's mostly the big scene at the beginning. Um, or I guess four, because there's the big scene at the beginning. There's the scene at sea, there's Ginza, and then there's the big sequence at the end. Um, and so it's a movie that has a relatively low percentage overall of Godzilla. Um, but in a way that's very effective. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, the whole movie is even beyond Jaws, though, it's very Spielbergian, broadly speaking. Um, I think like the whole climax of the movie and the way they play that off, we'll get into, it feels very Spielbergy. The whole opening of the movie is very Jurassic Park on um, the way they they shoot like little um, baby looking Godzilla um, is like that. Like they, they do a great job of sort of, I think, I don't know like how much of the, those elements are specifically intended as pulling from Spielberg, but I think it's just the fundamental filmmaking style feels like it's pulling from that kind of school and that world um, that Spielberg comes from as well. I would not be surprised if those are all reference. And I think like beyond just kind of those filmmaking qualities, I think also the handling of tone in this movie mm-hmm. feels like early Spielberg specifically, like seventies and eighties, close encounters, Jaws, Indiana Jones, uh, a little bit, not as much because that's not as serious a movie. But uh-huh. you know what I mean. Like, I think it's the it's the because this movie is broadly engaged in melodrama, and I think yeah. melodrama gets thrown around as like a negative, like you're being melodramatic. No, no, no. It's an actual like generic term that means something, and this movie is very engaged in it. And I like it takes some leaps that like. Um, my brother Thomas saw this movie at my favorite theater, but since I don't live in Colorado, I couldn't see it at, so I'm a little bummed because I had to see this at my shitty mall theater, but it was fine. Um, anyway, but like, and he saw it and at the end, people were like, it's unrealistic that the wife lived at the end. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's completely unrealistic, but that's kind of the point. And like, that is, it is so, that is such the melodramatic touch that Uh like, and you, for me, you can see it coming 45 minutes before it happens, that that's going to be the end of the movie. But that is not a, that is a feature, not a bug. That is that like, there is clearly the whole point of the movie is that Koichi needs to learn to value his life and life around him more. And he needs to make the active decision to live beyond his own trauma. And when he does, the world will open back up for him. And that is like, metaphorically symbolically what the ending of the movie is with her having survived is that the world does open back up there are things that he could not imagine in his sort of death spiral that when he pulls himself out of it open up to him and like i think that's the kind of handling of melodrama here that is so beautifully done and i think you know filmmakers around the world you see i think probably afraid to touch it as fully as this movie does but it does it so beautifully yeah because i do think there's like a certain kind of audience that we a lot of like modern media has cultivated that is so sort of like literal and is so focused on, you know, plot holes and things like that and wanting to read plots as these sort of like logical, you know, puzzle pieces that are all trying to fit together in a certain way. You know, this is like the J.J. Abrams of the world with his puzzle box bullshit, um, very much like sort of incentivized looking at things that way. I think like our spoiler culture has led to that in the idea of like, you know, most people would consider, ah, oh, the wife lives at the end. Well, that's a spoiler. It's like, it's not really, because the movie is operating on an emotional logic, not on a practical logic, because that's the kind of movie that it is. You know, there are movies that can operate on practical logic, and that is fine, and it works for those movies' worldview, but you can also have, you know, I mean, the history of fiction is more dominated by stories that operate on an extremely emotional kind of logic that, yes, obviously, literally... In 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 the film's world, if you take things very literally, um, Noriko, the his partner, um, would have lived was alive regardless of whatever choice that Koichi makes at the end of the movie. But the emotional logic of the movie and the sequence of events as presented to the viewer emotionally is Koichi overcomes his big character arc and sort of resolves that trauma, 
And because that happens, that then leads to Noriko being alive on an emotional level, even if she obviously would have served. She didn't come to life through necromancy or anything like that. She was already alive. Um, but also, you know, he's a character that he would never have known about that if he had died. But yeah, it's just like the movie, as you say, is is well versed in melodramatic storytelling, which is how like a lot of Japanese fiction generally works anyways. Yes. Like anime so often works on very melodramatic logic. Manga often works on very melodramatic logic. Um, you know, I think it's one of the also like a lot of Japanese acting traditions come from more melodramatic genres that then lead to, you know, it's very emotionally big and what you sometimes would label as over the top if you're using a different framework. Uh, but for this movie, like all those things are honed to such a precise degree um, that, you know, I think the whole movie and its plot and its construction, it just works like fucking gangbusters. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the original Godzilla movie from 1954 has a little bit of this in that you have, like, the main couple who are getting married and you have Dr. Serizawa who is very overcome with, you know, his guilt that leads him to use the oxygen destroyer at the end but also destroy it and himself. Um, but I think this movie is interesting in how it really runs with some of those ideas and then is also kind of in conversation with 1954 Godzilla in that the the character who has that guilt does not die at the end of this one. There is not a, like, destruction of the self to destroy the monster. There is this idea that something better can be constructed by destroying the monster, both literally and figuratively, yeah. because Godzilla is both literal and figurative in all the best Godzilla movies, you yes. know? Yeah. Yeah. So where do we want to start breaking down other pieces of this movie, Jonathan? Oh, man. I mean, should we just talk about Godzilla and the effects and all those yeah. just th those sequences and how crazy they are? I just kind of want to hear your take on uh, this is, you know, we've had a lot of different versions of Godzilla in recent years. We've had the legendary Hollywood Godzilla. We had Shin Godzilla. And we've got this this big guy. And then there's all the animated takes we've had in recent years. Um, where does this one stack up for you? I, I love it. Obviously, like Shin Godzilla is like a very kind of radical looking version of Godzilla that obviously does some fucking wild not <laughs> he does some things you don't normally associate with Godzilla um this feels like it is like what the legendary style Godzilla is going for if it was better designed um like I like the legendary style Godzilla just fine but he is a big chunky boy in a way that feels like <laughs> is if in a way that feels like they're sort of obsessed with trying to make it more realistic right it's just the sort of trap that so many of the western monster movies fall into with how they design their monsters they end up slowly just becoming sort of pasty fleshy mush um and they don't really have sort of a clear silhouette and a really clear core design aesthetic this feels like you see a lot more of the classic design and the classic godzilla silhouette in there while still making him like bigger a little bit chunkier um but he's he's incredibly fierce and intimidating um, it honestly, the thing it most reminds me of is it feels like a big update of the Heisei era Godzilla, um, which was the kind of the nineties era movies, um, which had a very sort of snarly intense looking Godzilla and, um, the face of this Godzilla and the overall proportions of the neck and head feel pretty similar to that, um, Godzilla, which is to me like kind of the peak Godzilla design in many ways is the nineties movies, um, yeah, but it's, it's a really phenomenal Godzilla design, the way that they sort of, um, use his atomic breath in a very different way is just incredible. The scene in Ginza where he uses his atomic breath properly for the first time, right? You get this is another very Spielbergian Jaws kind of touch. You get that little hint of it where he uses the breath under the water and blows up the Takao battleship. 
Um, and then at the, when he attacks Ginza, you see the actual full sequence and the spines popping up from his back as it charges. Then he fires the beam. But I think that extra level of, oh, it's not just like, and he shoots some fire. It is a like blast that then explodes and makes a fucking mushroom cloud. Um, and the ferocity of that is incredible. And that sense of, oh, we're fucked. Like, yes. you're just, you're completely absolutely fucked um it has i think a pretty similar overall effect as the big standout scene in sheen godzilla where godzilla uses the breath and it shoots out of his fucking spines and all that wild shit happens he like levels half the city um but it is it's a similar effect but is done in such a different way here Uh, obviously to very directly mirror the imagery of the the atomic bomb dropping on japan which otherwise this movie never addresses right like i i was kind of I was expecting early in the movie for them to like have that be a sequence featured as they're moving through the timeline um, at the very beginning as the war is about to end. And then they don't ever like specifically focus on, ah, and then the nuclear bombs were dropped. You see the sequence at the Bikini Atoll that causes this Godzilla to mutate, but they don't focus on those things very specifically. Instead, it is just sort of, you know, left here in this imagery of what God, this Godzilla can do the the way in which his destruction levels these cities blows buildings over you know like reflecting you know that kind of very iconic footage of the nuclear bomb test just wiping out the houses and stuff like that um the way that that's all used to make this godzilla truly terrifying and just truly monstrous on a level that rivals the original film in shin godzilla there is no there's no little sort of speck of a twinkle in the eye of, oh, but, you know, truly, but he's like also fighting for nature or something like, no, no, he's here to fuck us up. Like he's he's here to fuck us up and we're and we are fucked. Um, yes. The other movie that is kind of like that, and I know this was a specific reference point for Yamasaki, is one that you've seen, Jonathan, the 2001 Godzilla, Mothra and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters All at Attack, in which um, that movie explicitly states Godzilla to be powered by or motivated by or like possessed by or something like an expression of the sort of resentment of all the Japanese soldiers that died, not just like all the soldiers that died in the islands in the war. And Godzilla is a manifestation of that wreaking havoc on modern Japan. And you get that level of this is a sort of spiritual level fucking divine event that has happened here with this creature visiting our shores. Yes, absolutely. And I was thinking about that movie, too. When I uh, talked to my brother about this movie, he was asking about other Godzilla films. And I said, I'm just going to bring my Blu-ray of GMK home because you should see that movie if you liked this one. And I want to watch that one again because it's great. Um, And then I was trying to remember the full title. I'm like, it's Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Is it giant? What is it after that? Because it's a lot of words. It is. Um, But anyway, it's a great movie. If if, uh, listeners have never seen that one, they should. Yeah, and I agree with you on Godzilla's design. It's great. It's not doing the Shin Godzilla thing of where it looks physically like a suit. Although you can still, I think a difference from like the legendary monster verse is some of that DNA is still in there a little mm-hmm. bit with like the way his skin kind of moves around the middle and stuff like that. That, you know, you can see the link from like 1954 to now in how Godzilla has evolved. But yeah, it's a great characterization of him. My thought with this one was like, this feels like the cruelest Godzilla I've seen. Yeah. He's just mean in a way where like Shin Godzilla, he's alien, he's unknowable, he is from another dimension. Like the big 
big destruction that happens is very Evangelion-esque in that you can't even really comprehend the scale of it or like how it is happening. Um, and Godzilla doesn't even seem fully in control of it. This one, like when all the stuff goes down in Ginza and he is crushing people and he's just shooting a nuclear bomb out of his mouth, there's like a... There's a cruelty that is also, I think, because of the Koichi character who is feeling it, who is losing mm-hmm. everything again, um, that is so powerful. And yeah, just this is also where the period setting, bringing this Godzilla in to a Japan immediately post-war, you realize even though it's not that many years off, you know, versus 1954, where Japan is like getting out of the occupation, has had time to rebuild, there's something extra just harrowing about Godzilla coming into this raw, open wound of a country uh-huh. that is absolutely terrifying to behold and that is done really beautifully here. Um, well, you get that sense of like, there's just nothing they can do, right? Like, nothing, you don't no. even get the sort of token military resistance you get in a Godzilla movie where, oh, let's play the march and we get all the mobilize the fighter jets. It's like, no, like he just stomps through Giza mostly unopposed. There's like a couple of tanks that shoot at him and then they get wiped away and that's it. Um, Right. And you the sort of desperate effort by a like a private civilian organization at the end of the movie to come up with a like it's a you know, it's a kind of non weaponized way of killing of trying to deal with Godzilla. Um, is, you know, I just think it's like a fascinating way of contextualizing this movie and putting it relative to every other monster movie ever. Because every giant monster movie ever of all time has your token military resistance scene that obviously is ultimately futile. But it, there's a, there's, it just gives it a very different flavor when you can't even muster that. You can't even throw a little bit at this guy. Um, you just kind of have to roll over and let him stop Tokyo because it's like what the fuck could you possibly do and also I love the little kind of commentary of all of the Americans like MacArthur just like you guys deal with it I don't know like this is a lot and they're the Soviets and it's just you guys just deal with it Uh, and it's like we'll give you we'll give you one of the battleships that were going to be dismantled um, and disarmed like we'll let you have that one back you guys deal with it (laughs) and I just found that very funny that part of the movie it's amazing, you know, I, yeah, because, like, uh, this is another specific difference with Shin Godzilla, is that movie has, like, the best military resistance scene ever, where it's, uh-huh. like, so systematic about, because it's, uh, it's doing the Shin Godzilla thing, where it's also doing the, you know, bureaucracy satire of every move gets run up the chain and then run back uh-huh. down the chain, but you see every step of it from, like, okay, first we're going to do flybys, then we're going to do the tanks, then we're going to do the American bombers are going to come out, and they do all of that, and it's all, every step of it is fruitless, and then it leads to his big rampage. Um, and I feel like that's the best version of that scene pretty much ever. Uh, and this movie just has no equivalent to that scene, because in Ginza there's really no resistance, and then one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just the big attack on the water, where they are out there in their little mine-sweeping boat, and there, and then there is the Takao does come, but it can't do anything to him. Like yeah. they fire three times and then he nukes them. And then it is um, really, it is not a military resistance scene. It is the little minesweeper boat resistance scene yeah. where it is just them frantically trying to get away and they get the mine out and Koichi shoots it in his mouth and blows up his head, but then it just regenerates. So like it is, it is, yeah, a very different vision of that. And then the third act of this movie where the civilian resistance comes together and uses like, the detritus of their destroyed army to see what they can do to mount a resistance, but they are not 
they're like Navy people and they're scientists. They're not like big military leaders. So their leader is a scientist who comes up with this very like scientifically sound way to kill this thing. It might be my favorite way they've ever killed Godzilla in a Godzilla yeah. movie where the logic is because it like it makes sense in a way where like it, it does technically in Shin Godzilla, but it takes layers of gobbledygook. And this is the intentional in that movie of the amount of like. Uh, science talk going on in the background of like let's we have to solve the DNA strand and all of that stuff yeah. but this one is we're going to use the gas to like sink him down in the water and that will depressurize him to a degree that will probably kill him and if that doesn't do it we're going to rise him back up really quick to repressurize him and they do all of that and then of course the final step is Koichi flying the, the plane in and blowing up his head that's just such a cool idea for a plan and then if you are like me or apparently like Takashi Yamazaki and you're just into battleships and sea warfare having it all be that uh, and that is like how they're building the plan together is super fucking cool. I just love the detail that like they have to yeah. lead Godzilla out to like this trench so they have enough room and just the execution of that sequence and everything. It's such a cool, clever way to attack Godzilla. And then of course thematically is super interesting because it is definitely in conversation with Shin Godzilla about the idea of a Japan asserting itself in a certain independent way. And Shin Godzilla is about like, you know, breaking off these layers of encrusted bureaucracy. And this movie is about, well, there's kind of nothing here. You know, we lost our government and everything and we're under occupation. And like, it's the people, the people are what matters and we can do this together. Um, it is, it, it plays this interesting trick where I think it is very like patriotic to the spirit of the Japanese people, but it is not nationalistic. And like, that's a really key distinction in what this movie is doing. Yeah, and like in here, very much because it's like, I mean, the government has abandoned anyone and everyone, right? I mean, you know, like to the extent where they could have warned people that Godzilla was coming and evacuated people, and they didn't want to because nobody wanted to take the responsibility for it, which is a very, I mean, it's it's any government, but it's also the uh, imperial Japanese, uh, the you know, the people who were running that army, and then the people left over. That's very much the kind of people that they were. Um, nobody wanted to take responsibility for the shit that they're doing. Um, and so, yeah, like the way in which it's just is sort of this full-throated rejection of of the military and the government forces and all of those pieces and saying it's like we have to find a way to fix this without those people and without that structure and without those things. Um, and also without having to rely on all of these different sort of elements that have gone into that, whether that's the like hardcore militarization or the jingoism and the sort of, you know, the lie of the kamikaze of, you know, of giving yourself up for the glory of the empire and all that kind of stuff. And for the emperor, um, let all that shit go. Um, and it's about trying to help people and keep people safe and keep this country together. Um, so people can be happy and have families and all those kinds of things. Um, and the way that you do that is by using your head and not just literally throwing bodies at the problem, which is what the Japanese government tried to do during the war. Um, and so, yeah, like that plan, I think is just brilliant and how it brings all of those like kind of thematic ideas together that it's been building up through the whole movie with Koichi's character arc, while then also having just a very fun kind of procedural, very inventive sequence of events. Like as just as an action sequence, it's incredibly fun to watch all the pieces get put together and the drama of how it all happens again. All of this is, it's so fucking Spielberg-y that it's just it, the best way possible of like 
they have the plan of the best laid, you know, plans of mice and men. Um, and it all is going to slowly come awry and them trying to have all the complications and trying to get it fixed. And then all the kid coming in with all the tugboats and it's like, we're all in it together. And it makes no sense because there's no way they would have had enough time to tie all up the boats. And great. This is another, like the emotional logic trumps the practical logic of there's no way that that would have worked. It would have been taken way too long, but you feel the spirit of we're all in this together. Like whether you're ex-military or you're just a fisherman, like everyone has a stake in this fight. We're all going to do it together. We're all going to rip Godzilla up. And then at the end, it's about this one guy choosing life rather than death. Um, like it's just a fucking phenomenal climax sequence. Yes. I, I really found the last like hour of this movie emotionally overwhelming. I oh, think yeah. the way it hones in on its ideas and, you know, the movie really gets pretty explicit about it when you have like the, the big, you know, meeting sequence where they're talking about how they're going to do it. And you have one of the, the older characters say, like, this will be risky, but, you know, I want everyone to live. And like this country has valued death for too long and it has not valued life. And so I am ordering everyone to come back alive from this. And he has all says the whole speech like we value we haven't valued life enough you know we built planes without ejector seats and we had the kamikaze pilots and he goes on and on and and the fact that it like and I don't know how historically accurate this is I'd be interested in this but that Koichi flies this like unproduced airplane prototype at the end that does have an ejector seat but it never got into production while the war was happening is like such a fucking potent piece of symbolism and imagery and an idea and everything around that i found tremendously powerful because this movie is definitely tapping into a theme that is true of all sorts of post-war japanese media from the last 70 years which is that sense of betrayal that the people of japan had at the end of the war learning fully because i think i think a lot of americans probably don't even fully know this but like how much they were lied to during the war mm -hmm. and did not and that that you know imperial japan kept from them um how much you know the homeland was completely raised uh and how much people were asked to sacrifice on a lie and the the feeling of that uh you know there, there's a lot of you know movies and shows and books about that um, you know, some of the ones that have affected me most would be like, you know, Grave of the Fireflies is super heavy on that and it's beautiful and tragic. Um, but I think this movie really expresses that beautifully. My brother, uh, Thomas, who saw this, you know, he spent a year in Japan teaching English and he told me a story the other day that, that like he said was just running through his head the whole time he was watching this movie. And I found it really powerful what he said it, it, that one of his students was like an old guy in his like seventies who one of the things they would do was they would just have like conversation time in English where Thomas would be there to guide it and like help give pointers. But the whole goal was to talk with other students. And one of the prompts was like, if you could go back in time and talk to a historical figure, who would it be? And this guy who would not have been old enough to fight in the war, but grew up among people who were affected by it, mm -hmm. said he just would want to go back and ask Emperor Hirohito why, basically. Um, and I feel like that kind of emotion permeates this movie in such a powerful way. But I love that it is also forward looking to like, how can we dust that off our shoulders and like push forward anyway? And I think the way it finds through all of that and, and hand in hand with the action of the movie at all times is tremendous. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, I mean, the, the core idea of the main character of being a kamikaze pilot who who deserted right who who refused to do that um tried to find a way to avoid doing it right then is presented a second scenario that 
that seems different on the face, but is the exact same thing, right? Like if he had gotten in that plane and shot the little version of Godzilla, um, he would have died. It would not have done shit. Yes. They're like, it's a 20 millimeter gun. It can kill anything. It's like, yeah, well, your framework for what anything is doesn't include giant dinosaur monsters. <laughs> it includes like elephants. Like if it was an elephant, you probably would have been able to kill it in time. Maybe um, that thing. No, he would have been absolutely fucked. And he would have just been the first one to die rather than he did the smart thing and ran away and played dead and lived. Um, right. Like. He was given that exact same choice, but obviously it, it's very understandable why he feels such incredible guilt um, over living and having this survivor's guilt that is also, you know, combined with this feeling of he has abandoned this duty he was meant to have. Um, that then the neighbor character also, in her grief over losing her children, pushes on him as well in one of the early scenes of the movie. Um, that I think they do a very good job of making it. You understand that, like this guy isn't really responsible for these things, but you feel why he is so crushed by all these feelings. So that's just such a great premise for a protagonist character. And then coming into the end of the movie, you know, um, like the idea of what he has to overcome is he's going to try to, to fulfill that duty, become a kamikaze pilot, sacrifice himself in order for this larger purpose um, only this time around, the purpose is a real one, right? And so it's like, you can see his justification for wanting to do that. You can feel there's an instinct of like, well, yes, if you can take out Godzilla, it's tragic, but sacrificing one life for that, it's better than the, we're throwing lives at a war that we're, they're not going to be able to win. Because by the time the kamikaze pilots come in, Japan had already functionally lost. There was no way for them to win that war. Um, and so this is a better cause if you're going to do this. Um, so you can kind of understand it. And then the whole sequence of how they actually played this out cinematically, I think, is just beautiful. Of of It's an amazing narrative double bluff where yes. they, they have the, the bring back, right, that engineer character who's the guy who was the other survivor from that incident to put together the plane. You have the sequence where he's going to start explaining how this is all going to mechanically work with the plane the night before it all happens. And this is after you've been heard that speech about the that there's no ejection seats on there um and i think you as an audience member are supposed to figure out at this point that this engineer dude is is going to get him to use the ejection seat or wants him to use an ejection seat and that there's probably an ejection seat on this experimental plane like i think if you're a, a like an experienced media consumer you're supposed to figure that part out already i don't think that part's supposed to be a huge twist so when he points out the this is the bomb safety lever they do that in a way that's meant to communicate aha that's actually the ejection seat and you're supposed to think that that's going to be the ejection seat lever um and that like as i the thing i was assuming was going to happen at the end of this movie was he was going to pull that thing thinking he was going to die it actually ended up being an ejection seat thing and he ended up living um and it was like and it's like this big kind of like twist to the audience but it was very deliberately set up but the actual twist isn't that he ejected you're supposed to have seen that part coming to me the actual the twist was he made the active choice to do it he wasn't tricked into pulling the ejection seat that the when they do the flashback i love they just show the guy says like after he says this is the bomb safety lever and then back here is the ejection switch like he leaves that choice up into koichi's hands and it makes the ending of this movie so much more meaningful because i feel like most movies 
would have done that original scenario I imagined because that feels like the more shocking and sort of like it's got a bit more oomph in the impact of, you know, seeing him fly out and being like, oh, my God, what happened? Um, rather than what is actually they went with, which is so much more meaningful, which is at the very end, leaving that choice up to the character. And the one of the reasons why they keep Koichi at such arm's length for that ending of the movie where he's so kind of stoic and cut off is so that you can't read what his full intentions are in that moment. And instead he actively makes the choice to live and pull the ejection lever and escape um, at the last second. And that I think is just like such a beautiful sequence that again, I think is kind of like a smart double bluff on the audience by using multiple different kinds of foreshadowing layered on top of each other. That makes it a little bit hard to know exactly how that sequence is going to play out. Even if you know what the end result is probably going to be. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that the little flashback they insert where you see Tachibana, the the um, the worker who puts the plane together, tell him, here's the ejector seat. And Tachibana had been so caustic to him the whole oh. movie. And he just looks him in the eye and just says, live. live. Just one word, just live. And... Like, and that is what, and you realize that is what Koichi has been left with this whole time is that the person who he thought most wanted him to die has pulled back on that and really doesn't want that. Um, and that like everyone is in this to live and he gets to make that active choice. The other part, when you said the double bluff, I thought we were also going to talk about, because there's two places where the movie kind of sets up incomplete information for you in parallel editing. And it is that moment where we don't see him point out He's pointing out something, but we don't hear it, which is the ejector switch. Mm -hmm. And then it is also that a telegram has come to the house where yes. his daughter is being kept with the neighbor lady, um, which, again, I think you are supposed to, as an audience, as like a media savvy audience member go, that must be something about Noriko. Like uh -huh. either she's alive or they found probably that she's alive, but like it leaves that open for you. Koichi doesn't have that information, but we know there is something else beyond just him coming back to land. Like there is a, there is a better life than he is imagining for himself if he does this. And like, yeah, that, that dispensing of information so carefully in the third act of the movie is, you know, is it manipulative to your emotions? Yes. And it's really good at it. It's yeah. really fucking good at it. Movies but are it, manipulative. It's, it's great. But it's it's just so sort of methodical in the the logic of how it's all plotted out and leads to this, you know, very kind of like happy ending um, with like, you know, some complexity there as well. One other piece of this I do want to um, point out is uh, the plane he's in, the Shinden, is a real actual yes. plane. I don't know. I'm not seeing anywhere on here um, whether or not it had the ejection seat. Um, but this is a real, like, prototype experimental airplane that was in design near the end of the war and never saw any real um, use. The thing about that that I found, like, fascinating is the design of the plane. Because the, it's because it is a backwards airplane, right? It is an airplane that has the propeller is at the back, the wings are behind the cockpit, and then the little like stabilizing fins or whatever they're called are up at the tip that are the things that you normally would be expect to be at the end of the plane. And so it just looks like someone flying a plane in reverse somehow than how like you picture a normal World War II fighter. And that to me is such a amazing kind of visual metaphor of you're flying 
like backwards, right? You're flying with your like back to the enemy in some way, but like going into um, for this kamikaze hit, there's just like a complicated like mix of things in there with the whole visual design of the plane and then what it's trying to be used for. Um, that it just feels like it's it's meant to be. A, it feels like a plane that's meant to be running away that you're using to charge, right? Um, just for the physical design of it. And when I saw that it was an actual real plane, which I looked up as soon as the movie ended because I was so intensely curious. Um, it's just so cool. Um, and apparently yeah. they made, you know, like this whole big physical model prop of the thing and they showed it off at this museum, this Tachiyadai Peace Memorial Museum. This was in July 2022, but they couldn't say who had made the replica because the movie hadn't been fully announced yet. So like it wasn't revealed at the time that Toho had made it for a movie. It was just like, oh, here's this like World War Memorial Museum and here's a model of this sort of this like very beautiful made full scale model of this incredibly rare prototype airplane from the end of the war. Um, I just, I I love that weird little detail. I love it too. And I love that it is like, it's a period piece and they got so many of these details, right? It's so cool. Uh And yeah, I'm reading here also that there is a surviving, there were two made back in 1945. And one of the surviving ones is at the national air and space museum in DC. So if I ever get out there to the Smithsonian, I'm going to have to look for this because this is a cool fucking plane. Yes. Like, the, the, and that whole sequence at the end was where I was like, I don't know how Hayao Miyazaki feels about Godzilla movies, but this would be his favorite Godzilla movie. I can fucking <laughs> it guarantee absolutely it. Absolutely. He'll really be. like this one and Godzilla Raids Again because that's the other one that has a lot of airplane stuff in it. Those are his two <laughs> favorite Godzilla movies. I can fucking guarantee it. <laughs> I can imagine him having like. Just absolutely no chill whatsoever for Shin Godzilla. I don't think he would have the patience yeah. for that movie. He'd be like, they're talking too goddamn much. But like, I think this one, he'd be like, oh man, they're using the word Ikiru a lot. They're yeah. they're flying planes. It's World War II. It's all accurate. This is a Godzilla movie for me. Yes, exactly. It's like, I was just yeah. sitting there, hope, like imagining, I hope he's seen this movie and I hope he had a good time. <laughs> absolutely. Speaking of other phenomenal things about this movie, the soundtrack to this oh, yeah. movie... By Naoki Sato, who is a composer who, honestly, kind of like Takashi Yamazaki, if you look at his list of credits, is just incredibly, like, both prolific but also eclectic in all the things he's done, including some of the other movies Yamazaki has done. We talked about him last year because he did the Dragon Ball Super superhero soundtrack, which is good. Um, But this score, man, it's tremendous. It has a little bit of the Akira Ufukube in there. It's got Godzilla's theme, but otherwise it is all original and it's really incredible. I know my brother, who's a composer, is like this was his thing that he was just in love with. He's already like listened to the soundtrack five times just to study it. Um, you know, the instrumentation is really like rich and grounded and interesting. It's rooted in a lot of like sounds of the time. Um, I think it's you know at sometimes I think it's doing really beautiful atmospheric stuff like those early scenes when Koichi gets back to Tokyo. There's just kind of a an uncomfortable sound going on in the music to like. Like let it settle in Like this is an unsettled time And there's a lot of anxiety in the air But when the music gets bigger later on It is so rousing and haunting And memorable um, This is one where I definitely just sat through the credits Because I wanted to hear more of the music uh, And it's it's tremendous Yeah, it's an amazing soundtrack And then the places in which they deploy The Ifukube music Which is in the Ginza sequence And then they do it again at the end Is perfect Like it's just such a good um version of the classic godzilla theme with like there's a little bit of 
I think I want to say it's the theme from Destroy All Monsters, but I'm not sure. I'd have to listen to the track again. But there's like a little bit of some of the other Ivakube, like main Godzilla themes from some of the other show movies mixed in there. And then, of course, you've got the the March part of the main Godzilla theme comes in at the end. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a phenomenal soundtrack, whether you're kind of reinterpreting the classic material, which you have to do. You can't you can't. It's not a proper Godzilla movie if there's no bum, 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 bum in there. It's got to happen. Um, so it makes great use of that. But then all the original stuff is also incredible. And then on a similar note, the sound design in the movie is also fucking amazing. Like the the soundscape of it, I think, is incredible. And, and this is one of the best versions of the Godzilla roar I've heard in a modern Godzilla movie. Um, that obviously is going for something that's more sort of cinematic in our modern uh, sensibilities um, than the old film. So it's got that, you know, there's that sense of like the Godzilla's roar is so intense that like the speakers are fucking breaking when they play the sound, which I love. Um, I think they do a good job with that. But I like the, the exact way in which they leave off the end of the roar, which has that very distinctive rising, falling, like that noise that where you feel the sort of like part of the key distinctive noise from the Godzilla roar is a key being run across a, like a cello or something like that, a stringed instrument that's making that um, like weird pitch that rise and fall. Um, that like the, the exact way in which they sort of put it all together for the sound design for this movie. I really love, like you get that intensity of a more modern sound effect um, approach while also keeping a lot of the identity of that sound to the character. Yes, absolutely. It's it's super, super impressive. And just this is the other conversation to have is that this movie is like an overwhelming cinematic experience. It oh, looks yeah. so good. It sounds so good. And I know people have been f having a field day with this on Twitter, but I do just want to reiterate like this movie, its budget in American dollars would be 15 million. And it does just I what what are they money laundering at Marvel? What is it? Drugs? Is it like Russian oligarch money? What is it? Because it's not on screen. And like, and then I've seen the pushback of like, well, they pay people less in Japan. I'm like, have you seen the, what VFX artists in America are being paid, guys? The, that $250 million isn't going to the VFX crews at Marvel. Um, you know, like obviously there are differences in labor costs and all sorts of things. But like this movie does, I think, seal to me that I think Hollywood is in this real era of global decline in terms of what it can actually put on screen versus cinemas around the world, what they're being able to muster with fewer material resources is like a really interesting thing that's going on right now. Cause a lot of the like most amazing cinematic experiences I've had at theater this year have not been from Hollywood movies. Uh -huh. A couple of them have been the new mission impossible, the new John wick that money's on screen, but like a lot of them, it's just, you look at it and you're like this, this there's someone's doing crimes. There's absolutely no way that money's on screen. This is just executive pay and bullshit. Like this is, this is un, just incomprehensible where the money is going. Um, and I think it just does kind of outline how broken our filmmaking system over here is when you look at something. And I know Godzilla minus one is obviously extraordinary by any measure, but still it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it is, I think it's one of the things also with the movies, you just see the, the benefit of having your director be someone with this level of VFX, VFX experience, yes. who is also the VFX supervisor or the primary VFX supervisor for the film. Like, that makes a huge difference. You know, when you look at the Marvel movies, they are almost universally directed by filmmakers that have not had any real experience doing anything with heavy VFX. They're mostly pulling people from TV or from like the art 
film world and that and are even... directing like family dramas and then expecting them to also try to tackle a movie that has all these VFX and then like some of the biggest VFX sequences are just being done by different people that happened before they were even brought on as the fucking director, right? There's like no consistent vision for how to use the VFX and they're not using people who have any sort of like knowledge or experience with shooting movies for VFX that are super VFX heavy and giving them top reign for those movies. It's like, what do you expect to happen at some point when also you're just, you know, crunching the entire VFX labor industry in America to fucking death. Like there's no outcome other than your movies look like fucking garbage 95% of the time. Yeah. And they look like garbage for sums of money that should make you faint. You know, it's like, it's insane. And yeah, like I was going to say with the Marvel thing, it's not even that it's these people have no experience. They're not asked to contribute to those as- mm-hmm. aspects of the movie. They are effectively there on set to like call action and work with actors a little bit. That's kind of it. And like, it's just a bad, it's like clearly a bad business model. Even if you don't care about the fucking art at this point, it's just clearly a bad business model. Um, and yeah, you do have to look to, you know, the filmmaker counts so much for how far that money is going to go. You know, um, I think that is a lesson of this movie. It is something I hope people in America pay attention to. Uh, it, it, it really is incredible because, you know, this is playing in multiplexes right now next to stuff like the Marvels that it's just you look at it and you're like, I don't I don't understand the like cost differential. It's impossible to understand. And there's a million reasons for it. But all of them point to problems in Hollywood. And it's crazy. Yeah, because I mean, you look at the huge, the big Ginza sequence at the midpoint of this movie, and you've got the, you know, what to me is in terms of like the effects in the staging, probably the most outstanding sequence of the film, which is when Noriko's in the train car that gets lifted up in Godzilla's mouth. Um, and the sort of mixing of the practical effects and then the digital effects and all of that together and just the design of that whole sequence. Again, we've been using Spielberg a lot, but this is another just like so fucking Spielberg's ass sequence. It's just great. Um, you know, the tension in that whole scene is so palpable and you feel the impact of the excellence of the human drama elements of the film there so much because you desperately want Nordico to live like the idea of her dying is so sad to you because you really like her and you really like Koichi and you like this little kid um Akiko it's like you do feel like how tragic it would be if Nordico died here for her and then all these other people you really care about so you know all the sort of virtues of the movie's production and the thing they've really put a lot of energy into all coalesce in that scene um, both in terms of the narrative drama and then the way that it's all constructed together. And I think the you could just feel how much love and care and thought has gone into the like pre-vis and pre-production and designing of that whole sequence and the making of the physical props and set and obviously making whatever like they had to do to have the thing shift and the actress be in there and all that stuff. Like it's just incredible. And then it obviously leads to Godzilla destroying Ginza, the giant nuclear explosion. Um, her getting swept away, the fucking black rain coming down as Godzilla roars and then Koichi roars or screams in response as you talked about earlier. Um, like, it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking that is buoyed by this incredibly experienced and steady hand and vision on how VFX is used here and how it blends with all the practical things we do with the actors and the sets. Um, and that's just a a thing that we used to get a lot more movies that were able to do that on a competent level. 
Um, that used to be normal in the late yes. 90s and throughout the first half of the 2000s for VFX heavy movies to use blend VFX and practical in that kind of competent way. Like, this is exceptional. This is way beyond just competent. But you used to have stuff that was competent. And it feels like we've lost that for so many big movies these days. And it's just, it's, it's just weird. Like, it just feels fucking weird that that's the scenario we're in with so much of the mainstream Hollywood output at this point. It is. And, and it is it is this, like, kind of returning to this, like, factory model of film production where, like, just to use the Marvel example, because they're the most egregious, they have their sets down in Atlanta, Georgia, and they just run people through that. And, like, the kind of directors and writers and actors are all pretty interchangeable. And then there's this larger, like, VFX framework that things get spit out into. And there's none of the room for, like, the careful work of previsioning and storyboarding and, like, having a central vision that everyone is chasing that will result in a visually competent movie. And in fact, the only recent Marvel movie that passes that bar is the only one that was like a single artist at the head of, which is Guardians 3, where you had James Gunn having the clout to like, that is his movie. Um, and it, it makes a difference. So anyway, I, I, I don't want to descend into just bashing Hollywood, but man, Godzilla minus one. <sighs> Fucking to Toho's doing good with Godzilla these last two times out. Yeah, yeah. The, so said, the ending. Yeah, of, saying they're doing sorry. good is 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 a is an understatement. Uh, I know, it, but it's just crazy. Yeah, it's it because these are technically the two adjacent Godzilla movies, Shin Godzilla and Godzilla minus one. I know they're separated by quite a few years, but still, uh, this like like Shin Godzilla, like a lot of Godzilla movies, this one does end with our little tease at Godzilla might return, uh, where we have the we have the little symbol of of Noriko is having radiation poisoning that kind of looks like Godzilla's like fin on her neck. And then we have a shot that I think is just pulled straight from Dragon Ball Z when Cell regenerates after <laughs> Goku takes him to blow up on King Kai's planet, where uh, you have like the the flesh underwater kind of starting to regenerate. I did laugh because I was just like, that is just so that shot from Dragon Ball. And I do like the idea of him coming back as perfect Godzilla next time. Yes, and he's got like crackling lightning around him and he fucking smokes Trunks. Trunks wasn't <laughs> even in this movie. Trunks is getting smoked either way. They need they need to call Gohan in to do a big yeah. Kamehameha to defeat Godzilla. I'm not sure if that would be enough for this Godzilla, to be honest. No. But <laughs> yeah, no. what do you, no. what do you want to see Toho do in the future, Sean? I'm curious. Oh no, I mean you know I don't necessarily take the ending of this movie as you know is not really a tease for no but... more movies, right? Like it's part of like the overall the metaphor of Godzilla being this you know part of what he is is the grief and trauma of Japan that suffered through this war and you see how like self-destructive that grief and trauma is right so godzilla's the the sort of vindictiveness with which godzilla is crushing that nation part of that lens is the kind of self-destructiveness that koichi has um and i like the sense of like you know the maturity to the film that you get the like you know mostly happy ending of, of noriko is back and it's like this family is reunited because koichi has chosen to live but bubbling under the surface of that is always going to be that trauma. Like that stuff is always going to be there. You can't, you can't get rid of it entirely. And Noriko is touched by this in now a different way because of her experiences she went through in Ginza. Um, and, you know, I think it is just like a really appropriately haunting moment to end the movie on, to make you reflect on that, that none, that these things are never really over. Um, I, so all that being said of like, you know, because, you know, obviously Shin Godzilla did the exact same thing because every good Godzilla movie ends that way. 
Uh, you always need your little tease if you thought you took care of Godzilla, but the things that Godzilla represents can never be uh, extinguished. In terms of a next movie, I think you've got either two, you've got two options. Either you wait like five to seven years again and you do another, let's take a very talented filmmaker, give them free reign and let them make a very unique, very particular Godzilla movie that I think in that scenario would also be a Godzilla solo film. Or you make one sooner and and let's get on the Godzilla versus movie train. I would be happy with either. You know, like I don't think I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to make a Godzilla versus style movie to this level of excellence. Like it's just not a sort of format that lends itself to th- these kinds of much deeper narrative explorations. But it is also a format that kicks ass. So I would be happy to just have a very <laughs> cool Godzilla versus movie that still you know have a dramatic story, do your themes, do all that kind of stuff, as the best of those movies did. Um, but have Godzilla fight a giant other monster and kind of show, you know, the Americans what for. Because I like the American Godzilla movies we've gotten, but they but Toho could do it better. Um, yes. Obviously, they made this movie, and they made Shin Godzilla, and they made the old Godzilla versus movies, which are better. Um, so I would be happy to see that. I think it would be fun to see a modern Toho approach to a more versatile film. And I th- and I would be curious because I have the instinct watching some interviews with Yamazaki. I think he would be up for it. Like I and I think he would get that it would be a very different kind of project than this film. But I think he would be down for uh, making a, a kick-ass Godzilla fights another giant monster movie because he's made movies that are like that. He did like the Parasite um, manga live-action adaptations and stuff that are much more actiony. So. I think that would be very cool or get a different filmmaker and, and have them do a Godzilla versus thing. Either approach would be um, appealing to me. I just want them to keep making Godzilla movies because I like Godzilla and they're still very good. Yes. I mean, yeah, I, whatever, whatever Toho's doing right now is, is working in terms of empowering these really interesting directors to go big. Uh, And obviously like the whole legendary deal has complicated all of this because in years this is part of their contract when legendary puts out a movie they can't put out a movie the same year which is part of why there was a longer delay along with covid in this one but like um you know legendary doesn't make a million of these i would it would be interesting to see if they can get on a slightly more regular timetable what that might look like what kinds of directors they hire i'm just excited to see because the recent track record is good Again, I'm under. It's an understatement, but yes. boy, boy yeah. howdy! I mean, it's it is just such a fascinating era for this kind of stuff. You know, it just it does feel like kind of across the board. There's been a resurgence of it because you know, I mean, it was mostly gone outside of like the Ultraman shows on TV for years in Japan. I mean, after Godzilla: Final Wars in 2004, I mean, that was a 12 year gap in the giant monster movies like that whole thing you know the gamma franchise completely you know petered out and then dried out at that point uh, there's a long time where these things were just not in vogue and it's just been very interesting to see both over here with the legendary stuff and in japan whether you're talking shin godzilla in this movie or they made the animated films there was the whole godzilla singular point anime show they've done some gamma stuff um you know ultraman obviously is still always kicking around but i've been thinking about this specifically because in my ultraman watch through i'm getting kind of close to the point where there's a huge gap because like godzilla petered out in the 70s all of that kind of stuff petered out into the 70s as you got like anime got bigger so it's cool to see we're in it's a very different kind of era for the franchise compared to the show or the heisei era or the millennium era where you're getting a one movie a year for long stretches of time 
um, but you're getting such a high level of quality for the like relatively low quantity they're putting out. So I'm very curious to see what Toho does, what their approach is going to be. But uh, this has been, I've been a very happy camper. I've been a very patient one, but a very happy one um, with Godzilla movies. So Awesome. All right. Well, you want to go ahead and move on and talk about some Doctor Who? Let's talk about some Doctor Who. Doctor Who, this week, we had our second and penultimate 14th Doctor story, because this yes. is a weird little era we're in, uh, which is Wild Blue Yonder, written again by Russell T. Davies and directed by Tom Kingsley. And Sean, I think this is one of the best episodes Russell T. Davies has ever written. Yep, this is a, this is a, a proper proper Doctor Who, as you yes. call it, right? This is, this is your... We get to do a weird one, because we have our season premiere. We've got our season finale uh, next week. That we get you get to do the the fucking weird one in the middle, um, as you want to have in a Doctor Who season. You gotta have a weird one in there. This is the weird one, and it's really fucking good. I mean, we were just talking a couple weeks ago on here because I had been rewatching the old Tenant episodes, and I talked, I you know, waxed poetic about how great Midnight is, mm-hmm. and and you were saying like one thing you were excited about with RTD coming back to the show is hopefully he would have the chance to do more episodes like Midnight, and you didn't literally mean like weird conceptual horror, but just like something that it doesn't have the weight of like a premiere or a finale on it, and yeah. it's just a straightforward Doctor Who story. And it is so funny to me that right away we get basically Midnight 2, uh-huh. which is Wild Blue Yonder, which obviously is different in a lot of ways. It's not nearly as, it's like a Midnight is more of a bottle episode. This one is conceptual, but it is by no means cheap. It is oh, a yeah. very elaborate episode. Um, but this one is absolutely in that vein of it is horror of the uncanny in a way that Doctor Who can do really well. It is, other than the first scene and the last scene, it is entirely Catherine Tate and David Tennant playing all four characters. Uh And it is so creepy. It is so conceptual and weird. It is bizarre. It is very funny. This is just such a fucking banger of an episode. The Star Beast was exactly what it needed to be. Very good. But like this, this is it. Put it in my veins. This is Doctor Who. I love it. Yes, like this kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, we talked about last week the the sensation of the this being both a revival-style show and a sequel to Doctor Who. Um, and, you know, my main reference point for these revival-style shows is the two new X-Files seasons they did a while ago. And this feels like what those shows did where, I mean, Starbeast is way better than the season premieres of those two seasons were because those are very bad for those X-Files seasons. But it felt like a, okay, we got to do our normal, we're bringing back it, you know, or you have to reintroduce the characters, all that kind of stuff. We have to clear the plate and then let's just go and try to do like a condensed, this is what one of those kind of classic episodes were like back then. Um, and really sort of give it a good go at that sort of thing. And it's just so, as someone who had spent a lot of time over the past uh, month and change watching some truly terrible fucking Doctor Who, <laughs> like this, this scratched the itch more than the Starbies did. I loved Starbies. So I thought it was great. But this was like, yes, <laughs> like, thank fucking thank you. Because I think the thing that this episode has that all truly great Doctor Who episodes have is that you can envision them making a version of this with fucking William Hartnell in the 60s, right? Obviously, you couldn't do some of, like, the specific effects stuff, but the core idea of we've got the Doctor, the companion, they're on a ship, 
they're, that's like they've landed there. They don't know what's going on here. It's totally empty. And they think that they're alone. As they're investigating the ship, they encounter doppelgangers of themselves. And then they have to deal with that. And the whole idea as well of like, oh, we have like materialized outside the universe and we're further than anyone has ever read all that stuff, which this is like the dozens plus plus time that this has happened. I don't know why the doctor's surprised at this time. There have been quite a few times you've uh, materialized outside of the universe at this point, doctor. It's okay. Um, you don't have to show off for Donna. <laughs> it's like, we get it. <laughs> but, but yeah, like that whole concept is so fundamentally classic Doctor Who. And you can imagine how the old shows, old version of the show would have been able to go very cheap with this script in many ways. Um, and it would have been glorious. And you can just picture, you know, you could have Tom Baker and Sarah Jane do this. You could have Peter Davison and his whole gaggle of companions do this. Um, you could have Sylvester McCoy and Ace do this. You could have Patrick Shatton and Jamie do this. You could have William Hartnell, John Pertwee, like anyone could have done this, or obviously the other modern doctors. You can imagine this episode or a version of it being done at any point in the show's history. The execution would be different to match the era, but the fundamental idea of the story is so strong um, that it's very easy to imagine how different years of the show would approach this. And that to me is the marker of like, a really classic kind of Doctor Who because it says that the writing is hitting a really kind of primal sci-fi idea that transcends the boundaries of like the specific moment in history in which it's made. And that's just not true of lots of episodes of Doctor Who or other TV shows um, that they're too topical. They're too transient. This one is very sort of essential in its construction. And that makes for a really good time. I agree completely. And this one, obviously, like, it's extremely well-tuned for Don Donna and the 10th Doctor slash 14th Doctor. And, like, the performances that David Tennant and Catherine Tate can give. But I was thinking that the whole time, Sean. Like, the beginning of this episode of, like, just showing up in a random spaceship and exploring. To me, like, that's 4th Doctor all the way. That's, like, uh -huh. classic Tom Baker. It's the Ark in space. It's, like, half of his episodes is just landing on a random space station and walking around. And uh, it, it, it and then it goes in such weird and unexpected directions. But, yeah, it, it absolutely has that quality. And I love how RTD has chosen to structure this little mini-season. Because... It's a weird challenge, right? Of you have mm -hmm. three episodes with these two actors. How do you kind of dole that out? I think a lot of people would have done some kind of three part arc, I think would have been the reaction for a lot to like try to keep you like on the edge of your seat week to week. And instead, like they're linked serially by like the big cliffhanger endings, but these are separate stories. And I think it's very smart to say, okay, we have to have a big blockbuster at the beginning to reintroduce these characters and get the band back together. So let's do that. And we have to probably have some kind of big blockbuster at the end, because also something's going to have to cause the doctor to regenerate mm -hmm. again. But in the middle, there's there's the space to do something and I love that it's not just do something kind of conceptual with it but like really lean in on we have David Tennant and Donna uh, and uh, Catherine Tate back for three episodes let's make sure one of them is like literally just them and like it is mm -hmm. all on their shoulders put it on them have this crazy story where they also get to play other versions of themselves and uh, have a real standalone Doctor Who adventure in the middle there, which also I think solidifies this little mini era with the 14th Doctor we have. Because if he was just having the big blockbuster adventures on Earth, it would feel like more of a weird stopgap than if you gave him what we have here, which is like a proper Doctor Who adventure. Yeah, I think otherwise he, he would kind of end up feeling like the 8th Doctor feels in televised media, where it's just you just have this one little TV movie, but you don't have a proper Doctor Who adventure with him this feels like yes we get the proper doctor who go around with um this version of 
the character. And it also just gives them the like this production team a very different kind of um, challenge to depict. And you get to see what this era of the show and what Bad Wolf Productions can do. And, you know, we saw with Star Beast, I mean, they it was phenomenal. And it's equally just incredible here. You know, um, the you can definitely see a little bit of the occasionally the a little bit of like green screen. They're kind of separated from the background in some shots. But man, you know, that's fucking that's everything. So it's, it's like I, they, they, I'll take a little bit of oh, every once in a while you kind of can feel that there's a digital extension. But most of the production leans on stuff that's so practical with little digital enhancements. And they've got a cool little robot puppet dude in there. And they've got big physical prosthetics. Like looking at the behind the scenes for these is so fucking fun because you just get to see the absolute joy of everyone involved in making a giant, ridiculous, fuck off prosthetic hand that David Tennant can stick his actual hand into. And it's got a little grabby thing in there to make the fingers flex, right? Like those kinds of the commitment to like making the effects work so grounded in the feel of like the budget that they can go this far with it um, while keeping the spirit of Doctor Who effects work alive, even though they have way more fucking money to do it now than they did back in the day when they were just the BBC. Um, it, it is like really exhilarating getting to see the show stretch its legs like this and actually have a very lavish feeling production compared to the Chipnall years where it looked like where the show was kind of strutting around like it had lavish production values and it looked like fucking garbage. Um, so it's nice to see it actually like pull off a lot of these uh, more cinematic concepts like this. Yeah, this episode looks great. There is like, there are sections where there's obvious CGI and green screen work, but it is also in the places where you would expect it to be. Mm -hmm. Like, that's yes. a key thing. It is not the like Marvel movie thing of like, why are you green screening this forest where you could go just yeah. shoot a forest, right? Um, I'm looking at you, Spider-Man No Way Home. But like this, this you know, the, the one here is that there's the big main corridor of the ship and that is a green screen set. Because it would have to be. It's, a, it's, it's an impossibly enormous stretch of set, right? But other than that, pretty much every set in this episode is practical. Some of it is extended. Some of it is fleshed out. You know, most versions of the weird clone people are mostly practical. Other than when they're like the giant knotted versions running down the hall, right? So, like... This episode is actually extremely judicious about where it uses full CGI, where it is building stuff in. It's absolutely following, I think, a principle of trying to ground everything in as much practicality as you can, given the kind of ideas on the page. And this episode is like, the you know, the script RTD gave the team is so reliant on atmosphere and space. Mm -hmm. And like the first half of it is just them kind of exploring this ship. And so it has to feel real and interesting and atmospheric and i think the the whole team did a tremendous job here it's a it's an absolute coup of production design it reminds me of a lot of like the hinchcliffe holmes years where you mm -hmm. had oh who's the name of the production designer on all of that stuff he was um, i don't remember off the top of my head yeah but but you know who i'm talking about they had mm -hmm. a specific production designer then too who did really good stuff like the ark in space which i mentioned like absolutely i think an influence on this one and yeah where the set is really a character within the episode um, and then once the, the horror side of it starts, there's an editing trick this episode plays that I found so fantastic, where you have the Donna and the Doctor in the two separate rooms where he's playing with, like, the pipes with the water, and she's doing the thing with, like, the weird honeycomb, like, oh, yes. slides that she has to move. And the Doctor goes out, 
and he's playing with the pipes and then he comes back in and starts talking to her and then it cuts back to him in the other room and you're thinking is this some kind of like lyrical flashback insert or something or is it a flash forward but then it becomes weirder because then donna comes into that room and we're cutting between these two separate dr donna conversations and for a while it's unclear what the relationship between these parallel edits are until you realize they're not playing any kind of trick on us at all this is just parallel editing because there are clones or something of them now in the room who are uncanny and then it kind of goes to town with that idea and like the way that that sequence on just a production level i was so blown away by um because to introduce the main conceit of the episode you couldn't do it any better than those those two joy and scenes do i mean the direction across the board for this episode is phenomenal because it's having to do a lot right of Um, because you have to do a lot to disorient the viewer very deliberately at various points because you want to keep the viewer guessing as to which of the Doctors is real, which of the Donnas is real um, in these various sequences and keep you on your toes while not making it so disorienting you're just completely confused about what's happening at all. Um, And also then you have to do lots and lots and lots of shots where you've got two versions of two characters on screen at the same time and trying to maintain that illusion when obviously, you know, a lot of times it is you're, you know, you're seeing David Tennant and you're seeing the back of a guy who vaguely has the same body build as David Tennant wearing a wig, right? Um, And this is a thing I talked about um, last week on uh, the last Flux episode has a huge chunk of that story is about there. there's multiple versions of the Doctor because her consciousness is split because of bullshit um for a big section there's two of the versions of the doctor are together and it's just terribly done i've never ever ever seen that concept done worse than this and it's because it's such a classic any sci-fi tv show has done the we've got a doppelganger and we do like fun editing tricks and we have our doubles and all this kind of stuff doctor who has done it multiple times um maybe the only time i've ever seen it done worse is in time chase in the first doctor era where they don't have they couldn't do any editing tricks with the way the productions of those episodes work so they just have a man who very obviously is not william hartnell that you're just seeing from the front just totally shot normally wearing William Hartnell wig he doesn't sound like William Hartnell you're just meant to accept that he's supposed to be William Hartnell you're like no that's just a different person wearing William Hartnell uh, wig and it's very funny that's maybe the only time I've ever seen it done worse but at least then they they expected people to see it on shitty old 1960s televisions and nobody would ever see it again Um, so they have a good excuse for why they did it that way and they had no money um, you know, the way that the Chibnall episode did it, it's just awful. This is like one of the best versions of it you could do. It's so totally convincing seamless. because, yeah. and it's like so complicated what they have to do because you have to both convince the audience that this is happening and that you're not sitting there thinking about the different effects tricks done to try to have different versions of these characters exist in the scene together. But you also have to shoot it in a way that disorients the audience that you don't know which one is which one. And you have to do that different ways multiple times throughout the episode. That's a super complicated fucking problem to solve. And the production team and the director, Tom Kingsley, I think just did an absolutely phenomenal job at getting the the desired effect from that, that you are left guessing, but you're always convinced by the effect. You always feel like there are four different people in this scene together and you're never left, um, you know, sort of with your suspension of disbelief violated by just sitting there 
because you you just feel in your bones that you're looking at a person wearing a, a David David Tennant wig. That never happens. That happened all the time in that one fucking Chibnall episode. It was so poorly done. The highest praise I can give the effects work and the direction in this episode is that I didn't even think about it, Sean, yeah. until I brought up the the making of documentary on on YouTube and saw you know the guy in the David Tennant wig and the guy in the cat or the woman in the Catherine Tate wig, and I was like, oh well, duh, of course they had to do that, of course. But like at, during the episode, I didn't think about it once. Like it's super seamless and it plays that trick of like who is who. And, and, you know, having the audience and the characters guessing as we go along so well. And it is so intensely, incredibly creepy. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because yeah, you this... have all the uncanny stuff of the... Particularly is the way it starts with them just saying, my arms are too long, is so yeah. good. Uh, so that's like, that's a very rtd touch out of that's that's the thing that most feels like midnight to me of like the specificness of that creepiness of someone just saying... You know, my arms are too long. It's like, what, fucking what? My arms are too long. Oh, okay, there's something we're going on here now. Uh, it's, my arms are too long. Yep, nope, okay, we're, we're in it now. Um, it's, it's such an incredible sort of mic drop of that moment. And then you get the effect shot of seeing, oh, yeah, no, your arm, your arm is very much too long. That's very fucking weird. <laughs> um, and all the weird kind of just body horror shit that happens there, which is like... I love the way they do a lot of those effects because, again, some of it is just purely practical. Some of it is just here's a giant prosthetic hand and that's fucking hilarious. And I hope they kept that. I hope that's somewhere like they should give that away in like a fan charity event or something um, so that I want someone to own and have in their home a giant fucking 10 foot tall prosthetic of David Tennant's hand with a little clamp inside that makes it, the fingers move. <laughs> I just want that to be a thing that exists in the world out there somewhere. But also some of it is obviously they're using digital um, doubles and replacements for the actors and distorting them in weird ways. But I like the specific way they do it feels like it feels appropriately cheap. Like the, the sequence where they're giant and chasing them through the hallway is like it feels cheap in a good way. I don't know how to, else to explain that, where it doesn't feel like they're trying to make them appropriately feel like they are actually these, like, giant 20-foot-tall versions of the Doctor and Donna. It feels like a piece of weird filmmaking that, like, reality is distorted in some way, and their faces are sort of, like... It, instead of it feeling like a very convincing effect of what would it actually look like if someone's face was kind of half coming off, it looks kind of like a Photoshop effect of oh, their head is just sort of half off and there's just a weird fisheye lens effect on this part of their face. Um, and that stuff, I think there's a sort of hacked together nature of the way those characters look that to me feels incredibly intentional in the effects work. That is part of the uncanny effect um, is that they have a very tangible, that's the Doctor and Donna, and something has happened on the image itself that has distorted them more than you are looking at a digital replication of them that has been their bones twisted and this part dragged this way. Um, it feels like you're looking at something that would approximate almost like what classic Doctor Who could do if they had the time to do something approximating this sort of effect. Absolutely. And I, I love the way the episode, you know, kind of bounces between this, you know, abject, you know, offbeat, uncanny terror of the, the crazy giant versions or when they have their vampire teeth or the big hands or whatever with much quieter sequences where it is just Tennant and Tate talking to themselves, mm -hmm. literally this kind of like shotgun dialogue back and forth that reminds me a lot of some of the interrogations going on in Midnight of like 
trying to figure out what is going on. There's the scene where they get behind the glass in the cockpit and are, and, and the doctor realizes the key is to stop thinking, but he's the doctor, so he can't <laughs> do it. And so there's this like taunting going on. And just this, the special is like very good at ratcheting the tension, but in different ways where it, I think ping pongs between different registers of horror in this one episode, in this one crazy scenario. And of course, the whole idea of the aliens. I love any Doctor Who alien where we don't really know what they look like. We don't uh-huh. really know what they are. They are some form from outside the known universe that does not have a conception of shape. And so that is why they are doing this. And that is why they are bad at it at first. That's a great idea. Like that yeah. is a that's a $10 Doctor Who idea right there. And uh, I, I like that RTD runs with it. I like that it stays on that track. It was kind of interesting. He said in one of the behind the scenes that he, you know, he's, he was aware this is a 60th anniversary special. Should they find something crazy like William Hartnell in the basement or something? But like he kept just telling himself, no, the idea is good. We need to just stick with it through to the end and never kind of vary from that. And I think that was absolutely the right call. This is yeah. I like that this is so straightforward as an episode of Doctor Who, which is to say it's not straightforward at all. It's very weird, but it it definitely follows through on its ideals all the way through to the end. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes it feel like a more classic style episode of Doctor Who, because I think that's one of the pitfalls of modern Doctor Who is that it's so often way overstuffed because they because there's too much of and we've got to do this, and we've got to do this, and we've got to throw in these references and that reference and this reference, um, and this, it's none of that. It's so stripped down and kind of pure and essential, um, and you feel that commitment to the fundamental premise, which is it's just the Doctor and Donna, they land on the spaceship, they encounter their doppelgangers, and they need to figure out what to do about it, and that is the whole episode, and there's nothing else needs to be added to that. That is exactly all the episode needs to be really good. Um, because also alongside all the sort of the weird uncanny horror stuff, you do have, I think, a very satisfying, interesting mystery that kind of is set up at the very beginning with the robot and the giant hallway and all that and the banging and the announcement coming on. And I like that that gets kind of suspended at the midpoint of the episode once the doppelgangers enter. And then you're it's sort of left in the back of your mind like, oh, there are all these like little weird inconsistencies and stuff going on the ship that the doctor was kind of piecing together. And then, of course, it comes together in near the ending in that great scene where they're trying to not think of anything. And then the doppel doctor goes oh, but what about this and that and this and that and this and that? And the doctor's like, ah, oh, fuck, shit. <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, no. Like, he's yeah. my one weakness. Someone, like, telling me a weird mystery. There's no way I'm not going to start thinking about how to solve it um, and how all that, you know, comes together in the end of the giant self-destruct um, plan. I think just all those little pieces of the plot, when it goes back to that mode, it's it's very well done. So the construction of the episode and those to the mystery and the horror pieces are very well blended together um, and super well paced. Oh, absolutely. And I also, I really appreciate when they open the cockpit, like when the, the, like uh, the shield to like see out the glass and you see the captain that was out there died and that's what was banging on it. I like the skeleton of it is very like weird and alien. I, we don't really know what exactly it looked like, but it's like fossil is like really interesting. Um, and yeah, that whole idea of this thing that is so bad, you have to destroy the ship and keep it out of the universe. Cause this is like very limited, but it could get worse and could get bigger. And this is also why the TARDIS had ran away, uh, which is a great detail too. So yeah, all of that's wonderful. Um, the performances obviously are so, so tremendous. I am kind of blown away by David Tennant in this one. 
that we are two episodes deep into the 14th Doctor's run, and I feel like this is a distinct take on the Doctor mm -hmm. to some degree. Like, it is obviously rooted in what he did as the 10th Doctor. It is pulling in a lot of those ideas. But I think particularly in this one, there is like a sort of world-weary emotional honesty that defines this take on the character that I think you get a lot of here. But he is also a little bit more emotionally regulated. Like he has that scene where he's where he gets separated and he gets frustrated and kind of bangs on the wall of the ship. But then I feel like it kind of goes beyond your typical 10th Doctor moment of him collecting himself, moving on, and like kind of trying to be with it. There's There's just moments like that. His performance is so dialed in and so interesting. And it is it is more than I kind of frankly expected from these specials that we would get this. Again, it's subtle, but it does feel distinct. Yeah, I, I feel the same thing. That, and it feels like a natural extension of some of the things that we saw in the Starbeast episode. That it does feel like a lot of the specific affectations of the character are very much pulled from how he played the Tenth Doctor. They do the Alonze, they do all that stuff. But there is a sense that this is a character that has been through a lot more and has resolved a lot of the specific sort of time war angst that very much defined the 10th Doctor's era. And so you get this sort of emotional truth to the character, this emotional kind of like intimacy with him. Um, and his relationship with Donna just feels much closer because he's not as guarded as he was. Um, he's not as sort of desperate as he was in his own run um, when he was still hounded by the, you know, the horrors of the time war. And it, it yeah, it just feels like a very considered performance that is walking that line as with everything else is between reminding you what you liked about this era when it was like new and back in the day, and then also pushing things forward and being something new and doing something new with this character in the franchise. Yeah, he's he's fantastic, and I love the costume. It's so good. Mm -hmm. And and this week we get it without the blue jacket, and so it's just his like undershirt and vest. But like it's it it tells you what good costume design it is because it's really crucial to the illusion of the second of the doppelganger, right? Mm -hmm. Is that that costume is so identifiable. And I don't know, there's just something about it that also like fits this slightly different characterization in a way that I really like. He's, he's tremendous. Catherine Tate also just, yeah. you know, cause she, here we are getting to see her play Donna with her memories back for the whole hour. And of course she's getting to bounce off David Tennant for the whole hour. And yeah, I you know, she's even better here than she was 15 years ago. And, and, you know, she's just, uh, and that, I feel like that's praise. People grow as actors and performers. And, uh, I love the easy chemistry they have together. I love the more emotional moments. She's also very funny throughout this. Um, it's, it's, it's so good. And then they get to be deliciously evil as well, right? Yes. So they get to play yes. both of these things. And that's where I think in particular some of the stuff that Catherine Tate does I love. Um, it's just, yeah, the, the evil versions of the characters are phenomenal. David Tennant has that one line that's amazing where he, after he takes the tie off and, and Donna points out that like, well, where did your tie go? He's like, oh, I took it off. Goes, yeah, but where did it go? He's like... Oh, that's right. Would you take things off? They like, like, would you let something go? It still exists, and it's him. Like yes. the way in which you see this, like monstrous version of the Doctor trying to sort of understand how physical objects like function in a universe. Uh, it's very fun, and I think like both him and, and, and Catherine Tate just have a really fun time playing the monster versions of themselves. 
Yeah, no, they absolutely do. Uh, yeah, I, there's so many good jokes and fun moments in this one too. I would we would be remiss if we did not talk about the gravity mavity joke, uh-huh. which is just a it's just a great Doctor Who joke. I love the little opening with Isaac Asimov is great. I love how you Catherine Isaac Tate Newton. Pl- what did I say? Isaac, Isaac Asimov. Asimov. No, not Isaac Asimov. Excuse me, Isaac Newton. Um, and you have Catherine Tate make the joke about. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. The gravity of the situation. I found that very funny. That's a very good version of that kind of Doctor Who joke. But I think the idea that he then gets the word "mavity" out of it, and it just immediately switches that the Doctor remembers its gravity because he's a Time Lord and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Donna just knows it as the word Mavity throughout the episode is a tremendous running gag. I yeah. like that it's... They never really draw attention to it. It's just in the background. It's very funny. There's a great clip I saw from one of the making ofs of David Tennant trying to explain the joke to Catherine Tennant because, like, the time logic of it was confusing her, <laughs> which uh. is understandable, but it was very funny. Um, I, I, I'm curious if they keep that joke going or not. Uh, they don't need to. I don't need, like, this, like, deep continuity with it. But it did make me laugh. Uh, what I want is 15 years. I want it to never come up until 15 years from now. A totally random episode of Doctor Who made by nobody related to anything involved in this era. They just drop it in a line. It's just a normal Earth person just says, well, you know, when you're trying to calculate the coefficient of mavity. And I just want to just never address it. and Just leave it there. That's the only time <laughs> it ever comes up again. <laughs> Would be perfect. The one asterisk I have on this episode. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about it. Is it does wind up, and and obviously this is probably a precursor for more to come, canonizing parts of the Chris Chibnall era that I think you and I would have preferred were just never talked about again. You know, Poochie died on the way back to his home planet, and we should forget that. And that is the flux and the timeless child stuff. Those are good scenes in this episode. They're really well played by David Tennant. They're well written. Like, there's nothing wrong with the scenes. But it is canonizing these very bad ideas. I have seen debates on both sides of the aisle on this that I think are, are good, good faith positions that I, I understand. What is your feeling on it, having suffered through flux and all of that? Yeah, like, yeah, I've, I have a couple of feelings on it. I mean, one thing is that, like, it is hilarious that Russ T. Davis in, like, one small scene with a couple lines of dialogue did it better than Chris Chipnall did with like two seasons and five specials or however much it was with some of this shit, obviously like, you know, different lengths of episodes for flux versus the timeless child stuff. Um, But there is, there's a directness with which the dialogue, I think specifies like why these would be like a a thing to bring up with the doctor. I mean, and I say it did it better. I mean, Chris Chibnall literally never brought up the flux thing after it happened. Like, to be clear, for people who don't know or didn't watch it, I want to be very, very explicitly clear. It did not come up again that half the that more than half the universe got destroyed. This episode fucking downplays it. They're like, oh, half the universe was destroyed. Um, no, it was more than half the it was most of the universe would be the word I would use to describe what happened in the flux. And it never comes up. The only time it's referenced is that like the Daleks in Eve of the Daleks are going after the Doctor for revenge for killing all the Daleks. And that's very confusing because all the Daleks are supposed to be dead. So I don't know how they're here to get revenge, but that's what happened. Um, and it's the only time it comes up. And that doesn't address the fact that most of the universe still supposedly should be wiped out because it was never fixed. Um, so, yeah, so that like the whole flux thing was just sort of an unaddressed bomb at the end of the Chibnall era. Like the timeless child stuff was pretty open and shut. If you had never brought it up again, it would never be relevant. Um, the doctor 
gets over the fact that they have these like this whole other life time live times that they live uh, led that they have no memory of the doctor resolved that plot point twice in that era of the show so you don't have to bring it up again um it's pretty much done i do think like the way that russell e davis does is fine here um i do think it's probably confusing for certain members of the viewing audience who statistically speak so a lot of them did not watch that they had fallen off well before you got to that point in the Chipnall era. So it's like, I just think from a, from that perspective, I don't know if it's even really worth bringing it up and it would just be cleaner to move on. Cause I think most people don't know what any of that shit is. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I have one yeah. entertaining thing to do, by the way, is to go over to the Doctor Who subreddit where so many of the discussions are people saying like, asking about the episode and like can you guys fill me in on what the fuck happened during chibnall because like no one watched it there's even one of the like pinned threads right now is just chibnall era summary for dummies which is just <laughs> listing what the things are because so many of the comments are people like with the flux thing like they really didn't resolve and there's people like just desperately trying to explain like no they really never mentioned it again like what you were just saying sean because when you say it you sound like a crazy person right like yeah. yes they destroyed half the universe and never brought it up again and just people trying to like communicate how bad the chibnall years were to people who bailed on it over on the doctor who subreddit is it is good sport i'm enjoying it yeah and i think the thing that you know i i think the scene as it is is well written um, you know, the the monster going like, that's not true, is it? In response to the Gallifrey stuff. It's like, you don't know where you're from. That's a good, very precise way of hitting at whatever that anxiety is, even if it isn't really addressing the much bigger issue of the Timeless Child thing, which isn't just that the Doctor doesn't know where he's from, but also that he's lost the memories of all those lives and that he was abused and, like, captured and dissected and made the root foundation of all the Time Lord civilization and that's where regeneration and all that shit comes from is the Doctor and that, you know, the Doctor was effectively enslaved to this, like, whole crazy organization. Like, there is so much more packed into the Timeless Child shit that Chibnall just never touched um, that is not addressed here at all either. And I'm curious if they, if that, uh, that whole side of it, which is a much bigger to do, um, if that ever comes up again here, it's just the, you don't know where you're from piece. And then it's the flux. Half the universe was destroyed. But I think I, it's also interesting. If you look at the dialogue, it does leave it ambiguous, whether or not it's like half the universe is still destroyed or like, is it, is all that still gone like did all those people still die like because the scale of that is so stupidly huge the notion that half the universe was wiped out um like that's so much bigger than the time war was or anything else in the fiction of doctor who like you can't wrap your head around again what is a mollified version of it because it was more than half the universe um in the actual flux season here they've just sort of summed it up as being half the universe um, because they don't specifically, they do not go the step of saying that that this boundary of the universe exists because the flux happened, which is what I thought they were going to do um, once it started coming up. But they never go that far, which makes it feel like it still is kind of abstract exactly what you mean by all of this. Um, but obviously the point of it is to give the 10th Doctor or the 14th Doctor some 10th doctor angst. And that's another part of it that I'm maybe not a big fan of is I don't really I think like David Tennant plays those scenes well I just don't know if we need to give the doctor that kind of angst again um that it feels a bit too similar to the way that the time war was treated with the character 
Um, and it's like, I don't need that. Like, I I feel like the show spent a long a lot of time in the Moffat years trying to move on to be able to do different things with the character. And if we go back to, oh, well, now the Doctor just has trauma over being responsible for half the universe being destroyed and maybe it's still destroyed or maybe it got fixed, but we don't know, but he still has like trauma around it. And then he doesn't know where he's from and that that's just, you're slotting that in the time war hole in the original RTD years. I really hope that that's not where we're going with it because I think that would be disappointing. Cause I think that kind of cuts back on some of the interesting new things that David Tennant has been doing with his performance would feel a little bit less authentic if we immediately have to transition into Oh, but really, underneath all of it, he's just hiding all this sort of, you know, anxiety and angst around what happened at the end of the Chibnall years. It makes some of the other openness of the character feel weird or disingenuous to me. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I think I think there are, you know, there are probably interesting things that can come out of this. You know, one thing to keep in mind is that obviously Tennant is not sticking around. We've yeah. got one more here. So this is all ultimately set up for what they're going to be doing with Shudi Gatwa, who is the long-term doctor that we're going to have going forward. And, you know, I've heard some interesting theories about, like, we, we've already, they've already revealed some details about the, the Christmas special and that the whole Ruby Sunday, the new companion who he's going to meet, is a character who was orphaned as a baby and um, grew up not knowing where she's from. And, like... If it is if it is building to RTD wants to tell a story between the doctor and his companion about something like that, I would I would be interested to see that. That's a story sure. to tell that you could build that, and that is different than what Chibnall did with the Timeless yeah. Child. That this that would be an actual character driven story, and so if this is kind of laying groundwork for that, I will wait and see and reserve judgment. If it is just we want a new time war, then we don't need that. We can just move on. Um, but we'll see. You know, there's a lot to happen next week and obviously then we've got shooty got what to come and we'll see where it kind of goes but it definitely is the moment from this episode that most made me go yeah we'll see it's it's really the only thing in these two episodes that made me at all nervous about anything in the future because otherwise this has been a very solid return to form for doctor who yeah the other thing that i think this is honestly maybe the biggest thing that makes the scene just feel like a little bit of a gut punch of like oh 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 we're to bring this up is just the word flux. You 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 forget how bad the proper nouns were um, when now David Tennant has to say them. And it's like the rest <laughs> of the script is really good. And you're like, oh, God, the flux is such a dumb name for it. Like, I didn't even think about that at the time because it was the least of the proper noun issues that that fucking season had. So it's like, whatever. The, the big universe-destroying fucking menacing thing that is this existential threat is called the flux. Um, yeah, you're right. It does just sort of... Sound like I don't know, um, you know, you have a, like a stomach bug or something. Like I don't know, it doesn't. It's not the most sort of. It doesn't carry the gravitas of the time war. The time war sounds cool. You're like, oh, what was that? The time war. That sounds interesting and complex and ominous. Um, the flux sounds like I've got a bit of diarrhea. I don't know. Like it's not. It's not the most sort of life threatening thing in the world. So having David Tennant having to very solemnly and gravelly talk about the flux um and it destroyed half the universe um then how am i meant to let that go i'm like oh it is called the flux it does sound kind of dumb i don't know it does uh, when you put it in the mouth of someone who is effectively a classic doctor at this point it does uh it does fuck it up i can't i don't want to hear tom baker say that i don't want to hear you know patrick Troughton say flux it's, it's like try to imagine it in other doctors and it just does not come out right yeah uh it's 
yeah, it's it's if if you've got to bring it up, maybe just could come up with a different name. You know, like Russell Davis. Yeah, he's really good at coming up with the proper noun shit. Like he fucking knocked that stuff out of the park. Uh, you know, shadow proclamation and you know all that kind of stuff. So yes. he's good at it. Come up with a better new name if you if you have to use this, and it has to be like a thing that people say. You just you can't call it the flex because it's very very hard to take that seriously when the character's meant to be. This is not a goofy Doctor Who thing. This is oh my god, the trauma of the flux. It's just hard to take seriously. <laughs> All right, two more things. One, they get back in the TARDIS at the end, and they did not do what would have been the funniest thing in history of just having a completely different TARDIS set after it blew up in the end of next. <laughs> like it would have been the most expensive prank to play ever. But that would have been very funny. It is just the TARDIS set we saw last time, which is fine because as we talked about great TARDIS it set. It should have been the same TARDIS set, but even bigger. And every time this happens, <laughs> it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and it just becomes a running gag. That would be great. And then, of course, they land back in London, a little off from where they meant to in time. And we meet Wilf! Yes. And it's Bernard Cribbins, and he's great. You know, I had, in the back of my head, I had the slight worry. You kind of expressed this when they brought uh, Ian Chesterton back yeah, at the William end of Russell. the... William Russell, that sometimes if you bring an actor who's very old in for a little cameo, maybe it can feel wrong. This didn't because, I mean, one, it's an actual scene that they're yes. asking Bernard Cribbins to play, and he still totally got it. And you also see in the behind the scenes, he was very engaged with this. Um, he's in a wheelchair now, but like, uh, man, what a, you know, when David Tennant popped out and we saw Wilf and he says, Wilf, now, now everything is good again, something to that extent, like... Oh my god, uh, it's it's a great little scene. Yeah, because it's yeah, it's like a real scene, and you feel that Bernard Cribbins was like very much engaged in giving a performance. That's the difference with like William Russell, who's like ninety nine years old. It, it just kind of felt like in that scene he didn't fully know what was going on. Like it just felt weird, um, especially because he's got like one dumb little line that's like a little gag about oh the doctor's a woman. Um, it's a thing. Um, this felt like oh, there's a here's a scene there's a proper part um, and uh, uh, Russell T. Davis made a very lovely post on I think it was on Instagram you can find it very easily um, online where he gave a little sort of thing about his appearance Bernard Cribbins appearance in this episode um, that evidently like there were a couple of scenes written for Wilf in the next episode that they never managed to film um, before Bernard Cribbins passed away so this is the last time he'll show up on um, the RTD says that it's like, oh, we kind of, you know, that they wrote the character out, um, but that they didn't kill the character off screen or something next episode, that they just sort of, we'll see however it's referred to. Um, but yeah, like I do think it's a, it's a very lovely little moment to have with this character at the end. You know, it's a very, very sad that, that Bertrand Cribbins passed away, uh, but it is a great last moment that it just feels like the character's there. It feels like he has been around this whole time. Um, and the, the chemistry between him and Catherine Tate and David Tennant it just picks it up immediately. So it is a, a great little scene and a great way to sort of like give you some momentum to head into this finale. Yeah. And I, I had not seen his post. And yeah, he, he explains this that like, uh, really love like Russell T. Davis is, I love listening to him talk and write. Uh -huh. He's just so, you know, illustrative. Um, but yeah, he, he talks about that they did the read-through and, you know, then they shot this scene. And then unfortunately, um, he he was not able to to do more for the for the final episode. And that is definitely too bad. But hey, uh, it's wonderful that he got to make this final little appearance. It's really good. 
Um, and I feel like it, it completes kind of the the return cycle of all of this, mm-hmm. you know, to have have the Doctor and Donna meet Wilf one more time um, and have us see him. And they and he does say here in the post that we'll hear about him next week. Yes. They're gonna ex- they're not gonna like have him die off screen or something yeah. cruel like that. Uh, but yeah, that's too bad. But wonderful, you know, he was a he was a great actor. They did put a uh, dedication to him at the end of the credits of this one, and um, yeah, that's that bums me out. But you know, I loved seeing that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's impossible not to get a big grin on your face when when yeah. Wilf pops up, um, especially because they set that scene up so well early in the episode with Donna talking about like her imagining what would happen if they never rematerialized on Earth again, and that you know, uh, Gramps would be there every single day and he would never stop waiting. It's, yeah, it's a really beautiful scene and how they set it up and pay it off. Yeah, just the whole idea that he sent everyone else off to safety and then while apparently the world is crashing down, he's just there like in his wheelchair with a sandwich watching the spot where the TARDIS was. One, yes, Wilf would absolutely do that. And two, seeing Bernard Cribbins in the flesh doing it. Yeah, uh, that's a 60th anniversary treat all on its own. But one more to go here, Sean, uh, with yep. our 14th Doctor and, and Donna as our companion. The Giggle, which will have the Toy Maker back after almost 60 full years away. Because yes. that's like season three of William Hartnell. So it's been a long gap between, between the villains there. Yes, and I, and I assume that they'll have uh, Neil Patrick Harris in yellow face. It'll be very Orientalist, just like the original Celestial Toy Maker. Uh, I'm sure that that's the direction they're going to go in. Uh, you know, that's the Celestial Toymaker is one of those ones where you're like, oh, right, there's a long time. And in our least, this still happens. But particularly, they thought, they just were like, that's fine to be racist to Asian people. It's not a big deal. Uh, but that's that's one of those ones. Uh, there's some there's some good stuff around the edges of the original Toymaker. But that's when you go back to it, you're like, all right, <laughs> this is a thing they used to be able to do on TV. My one prediction for next week is when they did the Daleks in color, they did have at the end a little reel of some other moments from William Hartnell in color, and they did show a brief Toymaker moment. Obviously, they're not just going to go colorize the whole Toymaker story because three-fourths of it don't exist. Yes. So I am guessing next week is going to open with like a previously on Doctor Who, but Uh that will go back 57 years, and it'll be a colorized version of the scenes from the one episode that does exist, which is is where the relevant... Yeah, which is where some of the relevant information is there about the toy maker. Like, the Doctor defeats him, but each says, you know, I'll come back, all of that stuff. And the Doctor gives a speech to his companions about how the toy maker can't die. I'm guessing we're going to get a yeah. nice little recap with those moments. Yeah, that, that is probably what we'll get. I'm, yeah, I'm very curious. I'm excited to see, you know, Neil Patrick Harris is obviously a very good actor. and This is like a good kind of character for him. Um, I'm, I'm very interested to see the regeneration and and are like are we going to get the explanation for why this doctor regenerated into themselves again and all like you know there's a lot going into this episode that they've got to pay off uh, i think it's going to be based on uh these first two episodes i think it's going to be very good at bare minimum it's going to have some great acting and some fucking great special effects work even like you know there's definitely a chance that we get a very overstuffed episode of Doctor Who. Doctor Who has a history of doing that on the season finales, but I think we also got a good chance for getting something really, really phenomenal. So yeah, I am we'll, looking forward to that. We'll be here next week to talk all about the Doctor Who special season finale, whatever we're calling it, uh, and whatever else comes up. Yes, we will be here for The Giggle. Mm-hmm. 